Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from a basement in Westchester and an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Oh, it's great to hear from you, Andrew. This is the highlight of the week for me. It's just... You are... I can't believe that your face... Your very face, Andrew Gundling, is an oasis in my week. Uh, that's beautiful. I was thinking today that I, I, I miss you so dearly. I forget your, your musk, your smell. I was wondering if you could just like like take a, a waff of yourself in some kind of envelope and send it to me just so I can have a piece of you here. Uh, I is that can't... the, the cre- top three creepiest things I've ever said on the show? Well, as a former colleague of ours said once, you can turn anything into total creepiness, and you've succeeded again. By the way, you know how uh, paranoid I am about smells, so you probably can smell me from uh, Brooklyn. That's true. You walk into the, the studio routinely and put on deodorant, which I find adorable that like, it's yeah, like almost you're trying to impress me in some way. Like, we're, like every, Each podcast for you is like a date. Uh, it is. I'm always trying to impress you. Andrew, I look up to you so much. Well, that's beautiful. Um, In fact, I, 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 look up, I, look, I look up to you so much that uh, I want to always smell fragrant for you, which is a weird thing for a dude to say to his best friend. But here we are. I think it's nice. I think we need more of that in these, in these times. What a show we have for you coming up tonight. I'm actually very excited about this one. Um, We'll do some of the, uh, I guess, coronavirus-related discussion near the top of the show. MLS has made a, a somewhat important announcement um, that we'll talk about. Uh, the Premier League also floating some information that is interesting to us. And then CONCACAF and uh, even Sepp Blatter weighing in on future World Cups and how all of this could be impacted by various corruption scandals and so on and so forth. Um, and then, JJ, also in this podcast, because I don't want to get too in the weeds of coronavirus related discussion, I do have a new segment here called soccer only, Oh, which is, which is basically devoted to just like, it's almost like I'm pretending for a moment that this, none of this is happening and we can just talk like soccer stories. Uh, so I think that is a thing that people need desperately. So we're going to do a little bit of that. Uh, I saw your mailbag. It's beautiful. I'm really excited about some of the questions in it. And then near the end of the show, you have a new segment that you want to debut, which personally I think is a segment we could have been running for years now, but you've only decided to debut it today. Yeah, it's 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 short, it's sharp, it's snappy, it's zippy. It's for the modern modern kids who really want their information quickly and they want their hot takes hot. It's called JJ's Bad Opinions. Oh, and it. it's sponsored by Regular Beer. Yeah, I saw you're drinking what what is literally called regular beer. Is that right? Which is I mean, one of the most, it's one of the more hipster things I've seen because hipster culture has now done a full 180 where no longer is it hipster to be drinking like, because there was a time, what would you say, like 15 years ago where like Blue Moon was hipster and like pumpkin ales and things like that. But now we've had to, we've, that like hipsters have to be ahead of the curve. So once mainstream culture catches up with pumpkin and, and orange flavored beers and things like that, and even IPAs now hipster needs to move away and back to what is just straight up normal, just like a, a can. And it says regular beer on it. And now it's almost as though that can of beer has grown its own full length beard. It's that hipster. Indeed it has. And it's wearing skinny jeans and is dressed like a 19th century cobbler. So when will, I'm curious now, when will hipster culture move away from long beards and flannel? 
Like, when will we go back to... It's already happened, man. It's already happened, man. Uh, think of your uncle in the mid-90s and what he wore. Stonewashed jeans, turned up at the bottom with new chunky New Balance sneakers. Every girl in Brooklyn is wearing those on the street right now. It's a kind of offshoot of normcore. So this is what's happening. It's already turned, and you didn't even notice because you're sat there in your Syracuse hoodie living a different life to everybody else. Yeah, I do me. If I want to wear sweatpants and hoodies seven days a week, that's what I'm going to do right now. I have, a request. We're at. I have a request. May I do you just for one second? And that sounds weird, but l- last week you asked me for one thing that made me happy. And I, I just wanted to cram this in right now before we start with the COVID-19 talk. Well, I'll tell um, you what, I don't mean to cut you off, but you don't need to cram it in because I actually have a talking point within our M- MLS discussion that relates exactly to what you're about to say. What do you mean? You'll see. Let's just get into it now. Uh, so uh, I'll get to it in one second. It, it's, it's MLS related. You'll see. Don't worry. You have that's, a very- not what, that's got nothing to do with what's making me happy right now. Absolutely. No, nothing. but you talking about things that make you happy is going to be part of this MLS discussion. You, it'll all make sense. Just, right. just trust me, all right? We've all been right. doing this for a long time. Just know to trust me. All right. My life all is right. in your hands. <laughs> uh, let's start now with MLS. Um, as is the case with all leagues around the world and here in the United States domestically with various professional sports leagues, they're all trying to figure out uh, a way to make it happen, when to make it happen, what kind of timeline is safe to operate on. Uh, MLS is obviously no different. Uh, Speaking to Taylor Twellman, uh, Don Garber spoke about some ideas regarding getting the season in. He said uh, from tournament formats and neutral locations Uh, ultimately playing an abridged regular season, but doing everything to get as many games. We might be playing further into the winter, Garber said. That's even hard to imagine because we had a zero Celsius MLS Cup in Toronto in mid-December in 2017, but we're going to have to push this season as far as we can so that we can crown a champion in 2020. Uh, Then there was a report today from the Sports Business Journal and The Athletic that it appears June 8th is now the target date for when they would like to try to start up a season. This this has been moved back from what was previously mid-May. Uh, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here straight out of the gate, but I will tell you right now, June 8th feels very optimistic to me, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're sitting here a month from now and they're making another announcement about moving that date back. I don't understand um, this need to give any date or any timeline. Just like keep it vague. I don't know like if they actually believe, if they truly believe that June 8th we're going to be playing soccer in some form or if they're doing that to try to keep fans' interest uh, at a level where it feels like that's digestible, like that June 8th isn't that far away, like two months or so. I don't know, but I just, we're we're operating in a world of total uncertainty right now when it comes to sports being able to take place. So, I, I mean, maybe they know more than I do. Uh, I hope they do, but I just don't understand the need to assign any date to, to any league right now. No, you're leaving yourself a hostage to fortune. I, I don't know. Is it to placate fans? Is it to keep fans interested? Returning to the website and the Twitter feed? I, I don't understand it. Um, now, I, I suppose it, you, where I'm at, Andrew, is give all the dates you want. The data and the virus itself will dictate when sports return. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That is really how I feel about it. Um, now, Yesterday, or rather today, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said this on the on general sports returning, not just MLS. He said, there's a way of doing that. Nobody comes to the stadium. 
Put players in big hotels wherever you want to play. Keep them very well surveilled. Have them tested every single week and make sure they don't wind up infecting each other or their family and just let them play the season out. Now, that's kind of in line with what President Trump was saying yesterday, mentioning the return of sports uh, during Tuesday's daily briefing. And he said he would be talking to the heads of the major U.S. sports. So Fauci's comments are broadly in line with what the administration are tentatively talking about in terms of opening up, opening up or reopening many areas of American life. But Andrew, there's other experts who are much less positive about sports reopening. Um, Stephanie Epstein wrote a piece in Sports Illustrated where she spoke to Zach Binney, a PhD in epidemiology at Emory. Uh, his main point of the article, which you can read um, online, he totally ruled out the possibility of any sports with fans in stadiums returning until we have a vaccine. He goes on to say, the idea of a quarantine sports league that can still go on sounds really good in theory, but it's a lot harder to pull off in practice than most people appreciate. And here's the key point he makes. He talks about logistics of quarantine leagues. We've certainly heard things about MLB. He says, it's very difficult to negotiate even a quarantined league. And the key issue of testing and quick results for athletes and staff That is a huge thing. We don't have enough testing for all the major leagues to come back. There's going to be a real strain on the medical profession, which will have to be on site for these games. And um, just the time lag between getting tested, an athlete getting tested and then being deemed okay to play and mix with other athletes will cause huge problems. Yeah. So, uh, and I hate reading out that laundry list of woe, but it's, it's just true, man. I, I, I think I think Don Garber putting a date on it, I, I don't understand it. I think any any person in charge or an administrator of a major league in America right now, I, I think you just gotta hold fire and, and, and wait and see what the data says. Yeah. Now I will say this. Um I do like where his head is at in terms of kind of like a steely determination to crown a champion. Like he says in the quote that I read to Taylor Twelman, but we're going to have to push this season as far as we can so that we can crown a champion in 2020. Um, so when you actually, because like, we talked about how with the Premier League, to me, that's not an option, but MLS has only played two games. If they wanted to abandon the season, you know, it would be disappointing, but no one would really have personal gripes over it. Now, I'm sure there's financial figures attached to that kind of decision that doesn't necessarily affect fans that, uh, affects teams and the league greatly. So, you know, I, I'm not so blind as to not see that aspect of this. Um, but, you know, I, I was thinking more about, I guess, what the timeline would be. So let's say that June 8th is actually, like that week is actually when games are able to start up. Um, if they play a full season and they play roughly one game per week, we're talking about, um, postseason ending probably somewhere in the late February, early March vicinity, which just feels not doable. But Andrew, it it would, if they're, if they're going to try out and play a full season, which I don't think they are because Garber is already sprinkling in mentions of tournament style, world cup style, whatever it takes to get it done, which I believe MLS should embrace Look, nobody in this world of sports can do gimmicks better than America. And there is, for me, an NCAA basketball-style tournament 
for MLS if needs be that can be run off over a month is something that they will try and look at. Now, soccer is different, obviously, uh, but not that much different. I mean, if they're going to play every game, Andrew, you're looking at a championship style Saturday, Tuesday, or Sunday, Wednesday format. Yeah. I think that- I think the World Cup style is a thing that soccer fans in this country would embrace. I really do. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's... I think that's manageable and, you know, fans here are familiar with a format like that. Obviously I think that that's something that, that they should start to, to hone in on. I think uh, so too. And I, and I think American soccer fans will embrace it. I will embrace it, you know, cause I'm always moaning. There's too many games in MLS. I feel are totally irrelevant. Uh, and I want to get to the postseason as quick as possibly as, as possible. Well, your, your whole season might be some, some level of post. Yeah, like, and that could be fun. Like, I, I'm picturing the draw for how teams are seated against one another. Like, that, I don't. I could see it being an event that that MLS fans would get behind. I really do. Um, now, there was something else that I saw. I was at uh, MLSsoccer.com. I was at their website, um, and I thought this was this was good and healthy to have up there. Uh, it was an article there with the San Jose Earthquakes team psychologist, oh. Doctor uh, Doctor Jerry Lynch, and he's basically talking. Uh, it's not even really a soccer article. It was almost, uh, it's really only on that website because he is an employee of the San Jose earthquakes, but he's basically talking about kind of the mental battle being waged in the minds of a lot of Americans right now, specifically parents. Um, I wanted to read to you some of what he said, because some of it is, is interesting to me. Uh, he said, this is a crisis, but this is also an opportunity. Parents need to be reminded What is the opportunity here? I want them to wake up in the morning, think about seven things they're grateful for. Imagine that. What a way to start the day. You imagine that feeling, uh, breathing it into your heart. Now go about your day. Make it a reflection of everything you've been given. With your kids home, be aware, be mindful. This is an opportunity to really deeply connect with your kids. Um, JJ, I think that's beautiful. Start the day, you wake up, you open your eyes, and you think, what are the seven things that I'm grateful for today? So I figured this was the moment for you to be able to say whatever it is that you were going to say at the start of the show. Oh, that's brilliant, man. Absolutely. What I was going to say at the start of the show was, uh, you know, I got pretty down in the middle of last week, as a lot of people did. Um, And I guess what I saw over Passover was I went on Twitter one night and I saw so many people that were, it was like the Brady Bunch frame that were doing satyrs via Zoom. And so you had all the squares. And I, I didn't see one or two. I saw like there was hundreds of them. And it it was amazing. And it made me think about technology and how this beautiful communal moment still happened. Look, it wasn't ideal. You know yourself. It was far from ideal, but it still happened. And I thought how grateful I am that on Sunday, when I wanted to contact my mom, I could see her. She could see me. And I was just grateful for the technology that we have now. And I thought, what if this had happened, this this pandemic had happened in 1995 or 2000 think how different our interactions would be i know human beings find a way but at the same time um it just made me grateful that at this moment we have this ready-made technology that everyone could be together for passover and everyone could contact contact each other over the weekend for for easter and it made me feel better that every day i know i will be able to get in touch with the people i love that is very nice allow me to break your heart Oh. Um, <laughs> so my family is one of those that did a Passover Seder hmm. via Zoom. And so we are going about it. 
and you know it's it is what it is like at least you can see each other and communicate and and do you know whatever it is you're going to do and um jack who is four and is typically a chatterbox was eerily quiet and you know we're kind of just like you know playing with him a little bit at the table trying to get him to like loosen up but you can see he has this look on his face that's really sullen and all of a sudden uh he just bursts out crying and we said, what's wrong? And like my parents and my sister on the, the video chat also noticed. And we said, what's wrong? And he just, it all just hit him. He can't do, we've tried to do FaceTime play dates, things like that. He can't do it anymore. Uh. And it hit him in this moment. And he started crying and he said, I just want everyone to be here alive. Oh, it was, it's so sweet. It was sweet. And it was horribly sad to try to like to in that moment, get in the mind of how a four-year-old is processing this. And how it just kind of hit him. Um, And it was, so you're right. I think like we can handle Zoom chats, FaceTime chats, things like that. But it, I I put myself in the, like in the mind of of children and how they're digesting this. And it must just be so confusing that all of a sudden they just woke up one day and couldn't play with their friends anymore. And like, they don't know why, like Jack talks about the virus. He talks about his stuffed animals all the time, making sure that they don't get the virus. And, you know, you know, his Teddy has the virus. Like it's, it's, it's sad. It's truly sad. Now, now the other thing that this, that the psychologist from San Jose earthquake said, he talks more about kids. And I'm just curious if our listeners out there who have kids like myself, how they would relate to this. I have a seven month old and a four year old. He says here, maybe set up a schedule with your kids. Say every morning between nine and 1030, we're going to go for a walk or we're going to play board games or we'll do homework together. Maybe kids can have a role in cooking dinner. Uh, he goes on and talks about the importance of, of that. Um, I can tell you we've tried, like, it's one of those things that's so easy to put down in writing. We've tried everything a four, a, first of all, a seven month old is what it is. Like they just, you can't do really much, but like Jack says, uh, uh-uh, I don't want to go for a walk. Like what, like, what do we, what do you do? Like, I, I feel like a lot of people who have elementary school age kids, middle school age kids, you can get maybe a better handle on it because they have schoolwork. They can play video games by themselves. I'm drowning. Like this is getting really, really hard and it's no one's fault. It's not Jack's fault. It's not Luke's fault. They're great kids, but it's just the nature of their age. Like, I wonder if there's other parents that have kids of a similar age that are feeling like this is, this is really, really difficult to, to just go about your day, just like from waking up to going to bed. It's also genetics. You are indeed a difficult, difficult man to deal with. I won't argue that. That's fair. Sorry for uh, making fun of your your traumatic situation, but <laughs> well, look, we're healthy. I mean, ultimately, that's what matters. But you know, this is. I'm just reading the psychologist and the stuff he said, and I'm like, yeah, like that all sounds great, but in actual everyday practice, like we tried to homeschool Jack. <laughs> no, like he doesn't associate home with school. Like, no, school is school. Home is play. Yeah. It's like I'd be just I'd be curious other parents with young kids how are you dealing with this tweet myself or the show account I I'm just curious to make sure I'm not alone in in just like feeling how difficult it's been for a parent of two young kids at a gundling at co soccer pod for your kid issues now uh the european leagues I I don't have much else on mls in their schedule I wanted to switch over to english football saying that uh, MLS had said June 8th. I wonder if they were taking cues from England, which is now targeted June 6th as their return date. 
I guess I would just echo the same thing that I feel about MLS for the Premier League Championship, League One, so on and so forth. To me, it doesn't feel realistic, but I'll just have to assume that they're operating on different information than I am. But for a second here, JJ, let's put aside the football aspect because you kind of covered that, the difficulty of of that being a thing. Uh, I'm kind of curious about the fan element here. I think everyone right now is operating under the, the assumption that sports will resume, but fans will simply not be a part of it for the foreseeable yeah. future. Um, now, what foreseeable future entails is subjective. And I want to read you something which, to me, it kind of, whatever, whatever optimism I felt from reading all this stuff about MLS June 8th, Premier League June 6th, like, that's good. I want sports back. I want to watch sports again. Um, but that optimism was kind of dampened when I read this. Um, I read this in the USA Today earlier in the week. Um, uh, I said, speaking as part of a New York Times panel discussion about how to restart America amid the coronavirus pandemic, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who advised the Obama administration on health policy, said he did not think large gatherings would be possible until after a vaccine is widely distributed in 12 to 18 months. Uh, He says larger gatherings, conferences, concerts, sporting events. When people say they're going to reschedule this conference or graduation event for October 2020, I have no idea how they think that's a plausible possibility, Emmanuel told the Times. I think those things will be the last to return. And listen to this. He says, realistically, we're talking fall 2021 at the earliest. That's it's just sad to me. I'll enjoy the return of sports. Um, but I've said before, especially in soccer, where atmosphere is huge, fan culture is huge, both for MLS, international, European, whatever, all of it. Uh, the thought of that not existing for another year and a half is just wild to think about. Yep, it is wild, Andrew. And look, sport is the most important thing of the least important things. But okay. Um, and, and, and so that's the way if you're in, in, a, in the position of someone, an expert like that, that's the way they have to view things. And that's the way they do view things. It's tremendously sad. Um, but this is the reality now. I, I, I honestly like the Bundesliga. There was a report two weeks ago. They've, they've written off having fans in the stadium. At least that's what they're saying to each other amongst each other. They haven't made, uh, they haven't made a declarative statement on that yet. But they're preparing for no fans in the stadium. That's just the way it is. And um, this is the new reality. We have to get our heads around now until that joyous day that we can all be back in the ground. Yeah, and unfortunately, as much as I don't want it to be, I feel like we're almost, you're kind of left with this like this feeling of that it's the way that it has to be. Yeah. By the way, this isn't, this isn't fear. This isn't, oh, well, you know, we're just we're we're being overly cautious, or you know we're we're erring on the side of caution. It's none of that. It's the way it has to be for a highly communicable virus. Yeah, um, it will be interesting to kind of hear soccer. You know, like the fans, and it's a good thing. Fans typically drown out most of the communication on the field. Oh. It is one element of the game that will be interesting. It'll be an awakening moment for a lot of soccer fans. Oh, it will. Absolutely. To hear the thwack of a ball being, being clipped down the line to hear, um, to hear the amount of talk that goes on in the game. It never ends. And I remember when I, I first played my first game of soccer after playing Gaelic football. And I, I, I actually came late to playing soccer. I was 14. I couldn't believe how much the center back 
talk to me throughout the game. I couldn't believe how much the midfielder was talking to me. And these were guys who were, um, at that point in their careers, were seasoned pros, if you know what I mean. Uh, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I should say that there is breaking news from the UK. Um, the Scottish lower league club, so everything below the premiership, have voted to end the season. So that's oh, wow. it. Yeah, Dundee had the deciding vote and they voted yes to end the season. So teams were just relegated on a vote. I'm, I haven't read the details. I've just seen it for USA, from USA Today, um, and that's Boy, it. That's so um, harsh. Incredibly harsh. I mean, I don't know. To me, that's, I've said it's the one option that I'm, that I'm really not in favor of um, is just relegating teams in that manner. So three teams have been declared champions. Dundee United in the second tier championship, Red Rovers in the third tier, and Cove Rangers in the fourth tier. And one team from each division is getting relegated without the season being completed. That's on USA Today. So there we are. Well, I'd have to look at those tables. I don't know the Scottish lower league tables. Maybe maybe they were able to do that because the whoever is bottom right now is just so clearly bottom that it's not like even that team couldn't debate I, it. I, I would very much doubt that's the case in, in across the three leagues. I haven't looked at the tables myself, but the fact they're doing this is uh, is interesting. Wow. Um, we'll see if that sets any kind of precedent moving forward. Uh, and then moving to international football, we haven't really begun to think about how this might affect the 2022 World Cup, because for whatever reason, that still feels far away. Um, although, now you're starting to think more about it. It's kind of not. So uh, just this past week, Victor Montagliani, the president of CONCACAF, he says that the qualifying process for CONCACAF might have to change um, because of this. And I just wonder how how worrisome something like that is for an event that's held every four years with the prestige of a World Cup and what's at stake for these nations to get in. You just hope that however it is changed – it, it has to maintain the integrity of the of the qualifying process to the best of its ability. Well, that's absolutely right. And to be fair to him, that is what he honed in on in his comments. This is from the 18. Um, he said, this was regarding teams who have lost out, which is the most, this is the most interesting thing for me. Regarding teams who have lost out on the chance to improve their rankings due to the cancelled Nations League games, Montagliani said, that, to be honest, brings in a snippet of an integrity issue when teams haven't been able to play. What we're committed to is ensuring the format, whatever the format will be, has to fit into what the new calendar is going to look like and also be done from a sporting standpoint. Now that, actually I said to be fair to him, I don't know what that even means. That's that's a word salad of sporting terms. We may have to look, he goes on, we may have to look at reformatting what this looks like, whether this is a hexagonal or some other shape that is part of a kid's block set. But we don't, <laughs> What we don't know is what this thing will look like. Finally, he gets to the point. He doesn't have a clue. He he recognizes the integrity issue. They went and they made this thing, and they couldn't have predicted there'd be a COVID-19 that would emerge on the horizon to scupper their plans. But they made up this thing where the FIFA rankings would become paramount, and now they're, they're, they're falling on their sword on that decision. It was the wrong decision, and there we are. Yeah. Um, now, for those who are curious, so the hex was set to begin. Uh, match day one was August 31st, uh, and then it runs for literally one year over the course of five different international breaks, um, two match days per international break, 10 different match days total. And it runs from basically August 31st right through the beginning of September of 2021. 
um, that like like he said, it it's gonna it seems like that's gonna change uh, just because. But how? I mean, it's it, it's an intense how? amount of it's just an intense amount of travel to like it, it's one thing to be. This is the the problem that the Champions League was faced with. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to get a handle within the United States, but like, what will things be like in Mexico? What will they be like in Central America or the or the Caribbean? Like, it, it's there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, I don't I don't have I don't Andrew, have, I, I, have idea. I have no clue how. There's not even a point wasting any time on this. I have no clue how they cram in so much, and they made this a monster. Like they made one part streamlined to get the good teams into the into the the hex, um, and they made the rest of it this like large thing to try and also get yourself in and uh, into the the main part of qualifying. Like the way it was, I'm sure was imperfect for some people, but I thought it was, it was fine. It was better than this. I didn't have a problem with how it was. I didn't. Create- I didn't see why it needed to change. Quite frankly, no. All right, um, but. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I have right now on the uh, in the coronavirus portion of the show. Let's get to the football, Andrew. Let's go. Come on, I'm Parker only. Um, so I, yeah, I wanted to make sure we basically devoted at least at least one segment to just straight up kind of like soccer conversation. Uh, so I'm taking this from uh, it was on ESPN FC's front page yesterday. Uh, so that that would be Tuesday, based on when you're listening to this. Uh, Mark Ogden had a column up at ESPN FC about United. Yeah. United. Uh, and basically whether which target to prioritize because the the guys that they've been linked with really for a, a while now you've heard Harry Kane's name attached to Manchester United seems like for a couple of years uh never really been taken seriously but now it is based on some of Kane's recent comments uh and then also Jaden Sancho um who's been brought in so talking about those two guys Daniel Levy has apparently said that Harry Kane, if you're going to take him from Tottenham, okay, he's all yours for 200 million, which is just an astounding number, especially as we enter a financial climate that is going to be compromised by what's happened with the coronavirus. So um, that number doesn't feel realistic to me, but the point remains, whether it's 200 million or not, it's still going to be an extraordinarily high number to pry him away from Tottenham. Um, So here is my thinking, and then I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. like on the surface, it feels somewhat simple to me, but I think it's deeper than that. Kane, so Harry Kane is at a point now where his career is starting to get drastically impacted by injuries. Uh, over the last three and a half years, he's missed roughly a quarter of Tottenham's games due to injury, which is significant. Um, he's going to be 27 in a few months, so he's in the dead center of his prime right now. Jaden Sancho just turned 20, hasn't sniffed his prime yet. So if you're looking at that, and you're assuming that the price is going to be roughly similar or the same for both, you would tend to say that it's Sancho and it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Now, now here's why. Here's the only thing I would throw in there as to why it may not necessarily be a no-brainer. Let's say Kane's prime continues uh, from his current age of 27 to, I'd say, I'll be... I'll say 31. So let's give him like four more seasons of, of prime Harry Kane. And then you start to get the tail off. Uh, that's four solid seasons of one of the great goal scorers in the Premier League's history. Now look at Sancho. What do you think is going to happen if he continues to play at this sort of pace? Well, in 
maybe less than four years, the four years of Harry Kane's prime, you might get less than that of Jadon Sancho before Real Madrid or Barcelona or PSG or, hell, Newcastle with their new ownership before one of these clubs come calling. So that's the only reason why it's not a no-brainer. I still say that it's Sancho um, that you go with simply because when Kane's prime is up, what do you do with him? You're going to have to sell him at a loss or you're going to have to stash him on your bench as maybe some kind of late-game sub. Sancho, if you do sell him on to Real Madrid or Barcelona, you'll make an extraordinary amount of money if he continues to play at this level. So I still go with him. I, I, I We're also laboring under the... Um... The presumption that Sancho wants a return to Manchester. Well, I don't know that either of these guys. Uh, I'm throwing these are hypotheticals that I'm throwing out there purely off of Mark Ogden's article. Uh, I read. I, I read the article. I think it's an absolute no-brainer. I think you you thank Harry Kane for his time and you cash in now while while the going is good. Sa- you also have to look at if you're Manchester United, what kind of team do you want to build? Do you want this kind of like? Let's be honest. Kane is moving into. Uh, would Kane operate in a kind of a fluid front three? Like, like Solskjaer seems to be moving United, not so much towards a Liverpool plan, but certainly a team that operates with a fluid, um, energetic front three. And I'm not sure Kane fits into that. And would, that doesn't necessarily have a central striker. Also, what does Jadon Sancho give you outside of goals? He gives you a ton of assists, Andrew. Um, in the Bundesliga, never mind the Champions League or... Uh, the DFL Super Cup this season, 14 goals, 16 assists. Like 16 assists and 14 goals is just... What a player. And he's 20. He just turned 20 a month ago. Or yeah. I, I I think it's a no-brainer to go with Sancho. You're buying yeah. him at 20, 21 years of age. I think you've got all those years ahead. Like you said, you have the option to move on if you needed to. Um I just think he gives you more, Andrew. I, I really do. If you need to play him out like in a wide position, you can play him there. If you, he can tuck inside, play him more centrally. I think with the way the game is going, I mean, there's also the statistics about Kane kind of maybe moving away from, from that peak form that he had. Injuries as well is a huge thing. Yeah. I'm not doing it, Andrew. I'm going with Sancho. Yeah, and I've thought more about what you said um, two weeks ago how when you asked me that question of whether or not it's, it would maybe be the right time for Tottenham to move on from Harry Kane, how that's it's a very hard thing for a Spurs fan who's so loyal to him to reconcile. But, I mean, if the if that, I was going to say if that's the price tag, I think you have to do it. But that's not – I don't know that that's a realist. So he's, he's going to be more expensive coming off of injuries and being 27 years old than what Neymar was. When he's when not, bought him, like I don't see that. That's unreal. That's unrealistic, and I don't. I don't honestly think when if if it came to uh, excuse the phrase talking turkey about a Kane transfer, I don't think anyone is 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 putting two hundred million on the table. So so let me give you another hypothetical of another player who's been talked about as being on Manchester United's radar. So let's say you can let's throw whatever financial figures you've read so far. Let's throw those out the window and let me and just go off of this. You can either have just Sancho, or you can have Kane and Grealish. Um, just Sancho. Wow. Yeah, just Sancho. As good a player as Grealish is, I think that creative attacking um, guy who can pick locks and pick passes—that is, uh, how would I put it? And it's not, and they're not—they're not similar players entirely. But that is served right now by Bruno Fernandes. I'm not. I'm not. 
I'm not changing that. I think you've 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 committed to Fernandez. He's looked good so far, and I really like Grealish, but I think he's a better fit somewhere else. I think a bigger problem for United is, is a defensive midfielder to replace uh, Matic, and also another midfielder to replace possibly Paul Pogba, and um, and that we don't not, know what's going on there. Yeah, well, that would not be that would not be Jack Grealish. That's my view. Okay. Uh, and then one other one I saw that really, I enjoyed reading this story. Josh Sargent, uh, he was speaking about the U.S. men's national team and kind of this youth movement, and he called it, quote, a dream situation. Um, and to me, that sounded, I don't know, it sounded a little bit dramatic. It sounded a little bit kind of like young guy caught up in a fun moment, but I was sort of thinking more about it. So if you're Josh Sargent or any of these young guys for the U.S., I think dream situation, like they think of things in terms of World Cup appearances. Right. So the World Cup is going to be in the United States in 2026. Let me read to you the ages of some of these young players for the U.S. when the World Cup is here. Sargent will be 26. Uh, Pulisic will be 27. McKinney, 27. Tyler Adams, 27. Gio Reyna, 23. Serginho Dest, 25. Tim Weah, 26. J.J., there is a core of players who, when the World Cup is in this country, are going to be dead center, thick of their prime. I could see why Josh Sargent looks at something like that. And and I'm just reading into it. He didn't mention the World Cup specifically, but I'm just saying, like, that that would be kind of a cool thought in my head that all these young guys who are coming up together, all experiencing the same things. They're all a lot of young guys playing abroad roughly the same age, most of them in the same country, playing abroad in Germany. They're kind of all going through this together. And they're, yeah. and they're kind of like, you know, the last generation went out on such a low note that I feel like the country is so behind this young core because they're so excited for this next group to come through and sort of wipe away what was a bad memory in Trinidad. So I, I could see these guys, I could see him calling this a dream situation. Andrew, here's some of the guys who'll be 23, 22, 23, 24 in that direction as well. Uh, Conrad De La Fuente at Barcelona, Barcelona, Soto at Hanover, Ledesma at PSV, Reina at Dortmund, Lionez at Wolfsburg. This is a really great crop of prospects. But let me just say this. When you are 19 and 1920, 20, as Josh Sargent is, you think about the now and you think that the now is what will be in four or five years' time. Let it's me tell true. you, yeah. let me tell you that I would say out of all the guys, I listed eight guys, including Sargent, Adams, McKinney, Dest, and then the ones I just named there. That's eight guys. That's eight unbelievable prospects who are currently in the ranks of the top teams in the Bundesliga and in Holland. Okay, that's fine. It doesn't stay like that. If we get four of those guys through to senior who haven't fallen by the wayside, haven't succumbed to some kind of injury or form or a manager or a bad loan or something like that, we'll be doing well. It just doesn't pan out like that. And right now, we have a great crop of you players coming through, but we can only talk about it right now. You're right. Um, but I do think it's important to, to note that it does feel like the pool is larger in terms of guys under the age of, say, 22 who are getting consistent run in European leagues. Well, it seems that way. It is. It is that way. <laughs> and we're is. talking about like Chris Richards, Alex Mendez, you know, you've been right. 
Fuente. Like there, there are other ones that we haven't even talked about. Right. And, and, and some of the guys I mentioned, like uh, Lionez has not made a senior debut for Wolfsburg, uh, De La Fuente at Barca and Soto at Hanover in the same boat. But I'm just saying you are, you are correct. Like even senior guys who are playing in the top leagues. Yeah, we, we have a nice crop of them. We really do. And um, it, it, it does feel good and it is exciting. I just, yeah. you know, Can, I urge I'm, caution. The, the percentages yeah. are against. I have one thing that, because I'm so, I just have this, this pull towards negativity. I don't know what it is inside of me that does this. But um, so I was looking at this and I was thinking the only thing aside from the unknown injuries, stuff like that, that you can't predict. The only thing that worries me. So what was some of like in, in the last run of us men's national team, like the Fabian Johnson, Timmy Chandler, Jermaine Jones, those years, what's some of what we heard that there was kind of like clicks that formed the, maybe like the the American, the German Americans, the MLS guys. I just hope that that doesn't happen again. That you have this group of young players who are all coming up together playing in Europe. I hope that that doesn't become one click and then there's an MLS core that is another click and it kind of like eats away whatever team chemistry there is. I hope that that whoever the if it's still Bearhalter, you know, or whoever the team captain is at that point, like there will be work to be done to ensure that something like that doesn't happen. Especially Andrew, when it's increasingly likely or at least plausible that you can pick an 11 without a single MLS player in it? Uh, right now, you mean? Not, or, not right now, in the future. Well, maybe. I mean, we'll see. Like, Right, we know. have to see how these careers pan out. But you're right, and it is disappointing, and I think any manager... Not is disappointing going, yet. Nothing's happened yet. No, you're, you want to see... Guys, I can see his face right now. His <laughs> face has fallen. He's seen a vision of the future. He's like Sarah Connor in The Terminator when she has these flashbacks or flash forwards to what's going to happen you you are you live on the on the darker side of the town my friend constantly well let me bring you back up did you read while we're talking u.s men's soccer uh did you read the piece in the athletic about clint dempsey i did um what i love i if it was possible i didn't even know it was possible for me to love him even more post-retirement and yet i i do what he said to Mark Hughes when he was left out of the team for Hughes' first league game was amazing. He basically told him, if you think I'm not one of the best 11 players at this club, you're crazy. And, but first of all, he was 100% right. But just like, I don't know, I, I sometimes have this image of American players going over and playing in the Premier League and sort of just, not being deferential kind of just like okay i'm gonna put my head down and i'm gonna grind and i'm gonna work my way to the first team but like i feel like what you don't often hear about is that brashness and then later in the article it talks about him almost getting in a fight with martin yall where they were nose to nose after martin yall gave a weird speech to the fulham players about like they don't play for money you all have enough money that you could we could put it at midfield and it would burn for months something like that you don't need money and Clint Dempsey was basically like, no, I need, I want money. I don't have that money yet. And so he basically said to him, what, what did he say to Martin? You'll sell, sell me to Liverpool right now because like, I want a piece of that money. Like, and he's nose to nose with him at midfield. Like, these story, like this guy, what a competitor. Oh my God. 
I and again, it, there was a great ESPN. Um, I think it was ESPN uh, E60. Yeah, about him. He gave up a lot in his personal life. He saw a lot of tragedy, mm-hmm. so he could be where he was, where he is right now, or where he was then. And uh, I think it definitely fuels him. And by the way, this is not a, this is not bluster. This is not American braggadociousness. This is actual fact. He never didn't back up what he could do. He was every he was every inch the player he thought he was. One hundred. Uh, yeah, I just love the guy. They talk so much about this. They all to a man. It seemed like every person who was asked about him talked about the switch, the switch that would go off with him off the field, laid back guy. You know, but on the field, like Eddie Johnson. Uh, was one of his best friends. And who was it? Landon Donovan telling a story about how like Clint Dempsey would scream just like the most awful things to him uh, during training. Uh, And then like, I guess Eddie could handle it because they were so tight. And then like afterwards in the locker room, it'd be like, nothing happened. I I don't know that I have that personality. Like if you like during a podcast scream something awful to me, it would, it would sit with me. It would fester. It would affect you and I. Like not everyone can handle that. Me and you, Dempsey, as a teammate. Me and you have a nice relationship, though. In fairness, we can't say some horrible stuff to each other, usually off air, <laughs> and it's fine though because we we know where we're coming from. I mean, you made the most vicious joke about the Irish potato famine. I'll, I'll never. You take that back. Right I now. take it back right now. That never happened. You but if you that. you could say that to me, it would be no problem. That's the kind of relationship we have, Andrew. Just before. We go to, uh, we leave soccer only and go to the mailbag. Um, this is worth mentioning. I, I want to say right now, I don't know what it means for the future, but we were just talking about the youth side of things and, and America's, quite frankly, bountiful production of top class players playing in Germany and Holland and, and across Europe. Uh, this is from The Athletic. Uh, the United States Soccer Federation is expecting to announce the termination of its development academies on the boys and girls' sides. Um, the development academies featured close to 200 clubs with teams competing from U12 to U18 level and including all of the current MLS teams. And uh, they had just announced that they were, it's 13 years old, uh, the development academy. And they just talked about adding in Nashville and uh, Phoenix Rising as the new entrants. And now the board of US soccer are scrapping that. So I'm not going to jump on their backs because there needs to be something to replace this. Right. I was going to say, what fills that vacuum? And we don't know yet. Yeah. Um, but it seems very, very strange. I just wanted to add that we're, we're, you know, I'm tracking it. I'm trying to understand what it's about, but it seems like a, a strange move for me. Yeah. I saw that like just before we went on. Um, I don't, I, I assume they have a new plan for going forward, that this is not the death of integrated youth soccer in America. It can't, no, it can't be. It can't be. Uh, all right, mailbag. What do you have Ma- here? Mailbeezy. Um, at CO Soccer Pod on Twitter. Please follow us. CaughtOffsidePod at gmail.com is the email. And on the Instagram that the kids love, it's CaughtOffsideESPN. Starting out quickly with just a shout out. Uh, Luke underscore Anzaldo. He put me in uh, in contact with UEFA.tv. I was unaware. UEFA.tv, Andrew, if you're bored and you need to go back and get a classic game from either the European Championships or the UEFA Champions League, UEFA.tv has a ton of them. At the weekend, I watched England 4, Holland 1 from Euro 96. And this weekend, I'm going to watch the Welsh 
and their famous quarterfinal win over the Belgians mm. in uh, Euro 2016. Next question um, comes from Chase on Twitter. Chase asks, what broke JJ's heart more, Henri's handball goal versus Ireland or Gerard's slip? Amazing question. I actually don't know what you're going to say. Can I guess before you actually give your answer? Go ahead. So I would say that the answer should be the Ireland handball, but I think for you it will be Gerard's slip. You're correct. It was Gerard's slip. And I think there's two, there's a main reason, obviously because Liverpool were so close to the title. It was a game in which they didn't even need to win because they had two winnable games against Palace and Newcastle to come. And also because it happened to the guy most associated with the club, the club legend player for that to befall him pardon the pun, was terrible. Um, but I also think it was because I could directly and immediately bathe in the misery of that Liverpool moment in a way that I couldn't with Thierry Henry's handball. So for Thierry Henry's handball, I was in uh, New Jersey. I was coaching soccer. I went to the Dublin house in Red Bank on the way to Manalapan, and I watched the game there, and I was stunned by everything that happened. But with the time difference and the fact I had to coach my U16 boys team, I never got a chance to drink it all in at that moment. And the next day I was, you know, I was obviously on the internet. I was calling people back home, but, and I was upset, but it it just didn't seem to be the same. You know what I did for, for the, that Chelsea game in 2014, Andrew? No, what? I watched the game at home because I was hung over and I just didn't want to be around, be around people because I knew it was such a big game. I get that. And after it happened, I needed consolation. So I went to the 12th Street Bar, the Liverpool Football Club NY Supporters Club Bar. I went there after the game. Why? Because misery needs company. I'm so with you. Yeah. And I just went into the bar. And you think of how early people drink in this country watching Premier League soccer. There was just a mass of emotional bodies strewn across the place bleary-eyed and desperate and sad. And I I had three or four drinks among them because I needed it. Well, I needed it because of the hair of the dog to get over my hangover, but I also needed it. And, um, And you know what killed me, Andrew? The hope. The hope that even if we didn't somehow, you know, endure Palace and Newcastle, and, you know, it was pretty obvious that City were going to win out at that point and we weren't going to win the league when it was in our grasp. Um, people were talking about next season and what we do. And I knew Suarez wouldn't be there next season. I knew it in my heart. And the disappointment was so crushing. Gerard Tamball, that was the worst. No, Henri, uh, the, the only reason I said I thought I think it should be the Henri handball is, A, it's a once-every-four-year competition. Right. Uh, but aside from that, I feel like there's just – I feel like when, when, when a player does something wrong – it leaves you with a feeling of, of disappointment. But to miss out on going to a World Cup because of a blatantly obvious bad call, well, I think it leaves you with an empty feeling inside that is hard to, to reconcile. And look, I was, I was upset for... And don't forget, there's a recency bias here as well. 2015 is only oh, I know. five years ago. And, um, uh, you know, I guess I got over it um, because... I watched the game and Ireland played tremendously in Paris, Andrew, but we weren't winning at the point 
that Henri handled it and centered to Gallas to score. We needed another goal, and Robbie Keane and Kevin Doyle had wasted golden opportunities to put this game with the away goal beyond doubt. And I think maybe, I think Henri's reaction where he sat in the center circle with Richard Dunn and put his arm around Richard Dunn as if to console him, as if he had no part in what had happened. And Richard Dunn didn't know until afterwards exactly what had happened. That was the act of a creep. And and that's what annoyed me more than anything about that moment. Uh, That's Uh, a great question, though. What's next? Uh, someone asked me, they w- can we find out the reason, uh, uh, Miziel Romero, can we find out the reason none of us know what JJ stands for? I think a lot of listeners do. Um, he's been listening for two years, and I haven't said. Uh, I'm, I'm called, it's JJ, but it's John Joseph, after my grandfather, um, and he was always known as JJ, so that's JJ. Um, and another question about uh, the podcast um, Erica wants to know, as a fellow Spurs fan, what is the story behind Andrew? Choosing to support Spurs. I became a fan because of Garrett Bale, so I'm sure he has a better reason than me. Uh, I mean, look, when you don't have a geographic reason or like a family reason, then is any reason good or bad? I don't know. People might hear what I say and think it's dumb too. But I always gravitated towards them because I kind of felt like, not to be too dramatic, but I kind of felt like almost like the ethos of the club meshed perfectly with the Philadelphia teams that I root for. Like after Lasagna Gate, as traumatic of a moment as it was for Tottenham, I felt like this is such a thing that I feel like I can relate to. Like, I just like, so I want, I kind of like enjoyed a club like that with a, with a great history, with an intense rival, uh, which I think is in Arsenal, which is something fun to get behind. And then at the time uh, it was around probably 2005, I would say um, when I started to really like go all in, I just loved the team. Yeah, uh, Ledley King, uh, Aaron Lennon was starting to come up, who was my favorite Tottenham player for a long time, probably until Kane. Um, I just, I just loved the team, and I loved that they were kind of like not one of the big boys at that point. They sort of under Pochettino, they kind of rose to that point, but it was never like people call the Premier League the Big Six now. It wasn't that way, uh, for, certainly um, at that. Oh, point. it was. It was t- they, they, they used to say top four, right? I mean, Tottenham were not. You know, they were kind of in that next tier at that point with like Everton, Tottenham, Newcastle was probably there then. Um, but, you know, so they've risen to a different level. But yeah, at that, at that time, I just kind of just like, I just dug the whole vibe around the club, the stadium, White Hart Lane, all of it. I just, uh, I don't know. And then I will say that the cherry on top was when I found out that they were like the traditional Jewish supporters club in, in the Premier League. And I was like, oh, well, I'm Jewish. This, this works perfectly. Uh, and so it all just worked on on every level for me. Uh, Jordan, a Newcastle fan, he asks, I don't know if I'm late to the party, but as a Newcastle fan, do I put any real stock into this takeover? I have a large amount of boy who cried wolf syndrome over here. Thanks for everything. You two are the best. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Well, Jordan, it's the same. It's kind of, you say boy who cries wolf, but boy who cries wolf for a year. Because this is a an ongoing attempt at a takeover. So let's fill people in, Andrew, on the Newcastle potential takeover. Um, I genuinely think this time I would put stock into it. Um, here is what we know, according to the Athletics Newcastle correspondence. And this is from today, where they held a question and answer about the takeover. 
So this is the stage we're at. Essentially, to sum up, it is our understanding that the paperwork is now with the Premier League after an agreement was reached between the prospective buyers and Mike Ashley last week and the owners and directors test is now underway. So that seems to be very advanced. Um, the Premier League owners and directors test for the owners or the potential new owners of Newcastle United is now underway. And who are these new owners? Mm. I hear you cry. Mm. So the, um, I guess the, the company is called PCP Capital Partners. It's headed by Amanda Staveley. She was involved in the bid to buy Newcastle last year. The Rubin brothers, who are one of Britain's wealthiest families, they have a 10% stake. The rest will be made up by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, which opens the door to more ethical and moral issues. Yeah, I'm very curious how Newcastle fans feel about this because I know how much they despise their current ownership, but there's something about possibly transforming into another Man City, PSG kind of club, which feels very foreign to what Newcastle are. And that was the case for Manchester City too. Um, I don't know. I just wonder, does the fan base feel like, oh my God, we just won the lottery? Or do they feel like this is not what we are? I'm not okay with this. I would say the former rather than the latter. Um, from what I can, from what I can see online, people are Newcastle fans are absolutely ecstatic about the well, idea of new guess, ownership. It must just speak to how much they hate Mike Ashley. Yeah, but Filippo Clear had an interesting tweet. I'm struggling to I'm struggling a bit to understand why Newcastle United FC, being owned by the sovereign fund of one of the most brutal regimes on the planet, is somehow better than being owned by Mike Ashley, regardless of what, of what we may think of his ownership and his business practices. Um, that says a lot. It does say a lot, and and uh, you know, there's an argument. Fans compartmentalize things. Fans shouldn't care about this stuff. I disagree. I think fans should care about who are the guardians of their club. And um, Andrew, I think this is a a massive moment for the Premier League. Um, the the owners and directors test is now underway. Uh, I mean, does the owners and directors test say, for example, the the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia say n- n- there isn't a member of that that goes on the board? Say it's one of the Rubin brothers and Amanda Staveley, does that insulate um, the Saudis from full investigation? Um, I think, I, I I think this is massive. Well, 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 how did the Man City ownership deal go through then? You know? um, Well, they may decide that they're comfortable with it, but I don't think that they will be ignored. I mean, they are the money. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think this is. We're going to hear obviously more about this as, yeah, as, yeah. The, as this develops. But that's where that's the stage it's at right now. And uh, yeah, I think this is a a major moment for the Premier League as we know it um, right now. Uh, Seth the Panda, <laughs> great question. Topical. Whose career would you rather have, Sunis or Pogba? Andrew, even in these strange, uncertain times. Graham Sunis taking shots at Paul Pogba remains a constant, a bulwark against the darkness and a reminder of a simpler, more normal world. So um, 
just to fill people in, uh, Paul Pogba finally acknowledged Graham Soonis' long-standing criticism slash existence this week on the <laughs> on the United podcast. Um, these are the quotes from Paul Pogba. I didn't even know who he was, really. I heard he was a great player and stuff like that. I know the face, but not the name. I'm not someone who watches a lot of punditry. I watch a lot of football, but I don't stay after the game to listen to what they say, why they did this or that. I like to focus on football. So that was Pogba with, I think, a quite, considering Sunis's, you know, shots at his... Yeah, it was a pretty rational response. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was a very calm response. Yeah. Clear- clearly, he has not been paying attention to much of what Sunis has said. Um, and you're going to hate Graham Sunis's response. I just know it. Because I know how a sports, what kind of sports fan you are. Uh, Soonest responded on Sky Sports with, you know the oldest saying in football comes to mind. Put your medals on the table. I've got a big table. JJ, his response is so profoundly stupid to me. Um, <laughs> and maybe not even in the way that you're thinking I would take it. It's stupid because I almost feel like Graham Soonis doesn't know what Paul Pogba can also throw on the table. Like, is this just an Anglo-centric comment from him where he's just not counting the four Serie A titles that Paul Pogba was a part of with Juventus? He also has a Europa League trophy with Manchester United. And by the way, he won a World Cup. He was one of the best players on a World Cup winning team. So like, okay, mate, I saw Sunis has five domestic titles and three European Cups. That's significant. I'm not taking away what he's done. But like, to make that comment, it would have to be that Pogba either hasn't won anything or has like a, a league cup and like maybe one title with you. Like Paul Pogba is also throwing a lot of pretty prestigious winter medals on the table as well. And Paul Pogba is what, 25 or 26? Uh, yeah. Um, and, and like it just in terms of their careers, like Pogba, he's got 52 goals, 48 assists in 201 domestic league starts. Um, Sunas had 56 goals in 358 appearances. Different players, maybe. You know, as soon as was the captain of Liverpool's treble team. So I'm not I'm not trying to take away his career. Um, but to denigrate Pogba's career, you can maybe not like Pogba as a player, but you can't say that he hasn't had a good career. No, and um I think I think the issue with Sunas, he's 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 kind of got sucked into this rather, as uh, Barney Roney called it, undignified back and forth with um well, it's not a back and forth. It's just a back. He keeps firing shots at, at Pogba about, you know, kind of character issues. You know, he doesn't take him seriously. He's talked about that maybe he doesn't care enough. He talks about, you know, kind of personality-based stuff. And honestly, you know, if you're asking me who was a better footballer, I think Graham Sooners was a better footballer. But you can't deny that Pogba is an excellent footballer and if you want issues about what happened at Man United under Pogba so far, which I think has been disappointing, you know, you can stick to the stick to the football side of things. Um, I also think there's been great players who haven't won a lot. You know, you've you've said this to me before. You shouldn't when we, and we were talking about some basketball player. I can't remember who it is, but you shouldn't focus entirely on medals you know there's a lot of players that have ended up with european cups jimmy triori david may who are not good footballers are not at least not great footballers 
Medals aren't the ultimate arbiter of how skillful or how technically good you are a player. You know? I mean, look at Glenn Hoddle, who you mentioned last, last week. What did Glenn Hoddle win? Oh, we, you, we can run down the list of Tottenham players that don't have medals to their name that are just fine, fine footballers. Yeah, so I, I, I do think that's a dangerous one to go down. Um, but it, it is reassuring that they're still at it. You know, or rather, Sunis is at it. I have to say, Pogba hasn't said anything about Sunis up until the United podcast this week. Uh, Miles Costello. Um, why did I say Costello? Miles Costello. Say it right, JJ. What? Don't, be, don't Americanize yourself. I've been into the Premier League big time for five years and the international game since the O2 World Cup. Since I'm a relatively new fan, I struggle for context for some champions. What's a sports equivalent to Greece winning the 2004 Euros? So this is this is very difficult. Um, there's not real. It, it would be hard to come up with a, a professional sports American equivalent because just like the nature of American sports is that like it's hard to get an underdog to that level to win a competition. So I go to March Madness for stuff like this, and I view Greece as kind of like a mid major. Um, so like. Maybe if Butler had won one of those years where they made the, the the national championship game, but I almost feel like Butler is is like better to college basketball than what Greece is to European soccer. I don't know if that's too harsh. So maybe like maybe the year George Mason made the Final Four. Now they didn't win, but I feel like I, I guess just put put Greece in the realm of what a mid major is to college basketball. Um, I, if a mid major went on and won a national championship. Yeah, I, 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 I asked someone what, what they thought. Someone said um, NC State in 83, um, who went on that run all the way through with uh, Valvano as coach. And I looked, I looked at it. They actually started that year with a bit of optimism. Things fell away for them in the regular season. So I don't think NC State even works. I had to go to golf, Andrew. Oh, okay. Larry Mize, the 87 Masters. Pulled, he pulled off one of the most surprising wins in golf history with arguably the most unlikely shot. Mice took down a pair of legends, Greg Norman and Seve Ballesteros, in a sudden death playoff that ended thanks to him holding a 140-foot chip at the 11th at the 11th hole for a birdie. Mice didn't win again for six years, just like Greece, and finished his PGA Tour with just four titles. I got that in Golf Digest. So this is a guy out of nowhere taking down the big guns and um, and doing the improbable and then drifting off into the background again. Yeah. Um, Stephen Oviedo, is it wrong to get a Sunderland kit as a Spurs fan just because I love the docu-series? I feel very my American brain with this question. Uh, great to have my American brain back, so I will do the tease for that. My American brain. Uh, everyone has different philosophies on... Jersey and and general gear purchases uh, from clubs that are not their own. Um, for me personally, I'm not comfortable with it. I would say no, you cannot get a Sunderland kit and be a fan of another club in England. Um, that's just how I feel. I would never do it. Uh, but to each their own. I understand that that is that's just me. Uh, I would feel uncomfortable wearing another team's shirt. Um, Andrew, this quarantine period, lots of people have been posting online their jersey, their soccer jersey collection, and Americans in particular seem to have little trouble accruing jerseys from teams that would rival their own preferred team. So that is a cultural difference. 
I, I actually think with Sunderland being in League One right now, I say go ahead, Stephen, unless you're a Middlesbrough and Newcastle supporter, in which case you may not. Okay. Um, we need to whip through these a bit. By the way, can, yeah, you, yeah. Please, can you please watch Sunderland till I die? I'll, I'll, you, can, can you do that you, so we I can discuss you, it? You scolded me the other night. I'll get to it. Please. You don't, I know, want to, you don't know what's going on in this house. All right. All right. Let me let me skip through the next ones. I, I won't allow you to answer some of these. So um, apologies to our Nigerian listener whose name I can't find in the database of names I have for the mailbag. Wow. But he asked us to settle an argument as to who was the greatest player to come from that great country. John Obi Mikel, Kanu or JJ Okacha. I'm just going to say this. John Obi Mikel is still playing. He's had a very good resume. But this feels like a case of one of these things is not like the others. John Obi Mikel pales into the background compared to two absolute ballers like Kanu and JJ Okacha. I'm going to go with uh, Kanu. Just marginally over J.J. Okacha. But both of them were just such skillful technical players. To even mention um, John Obi Mikel in the same breath. I so mean, son, oh, I can't I'll, do it. I'll say this. I just threw into Google uh, greatest Nigerian player of all time just to see what would come up. And so there was a bunch of different random websites. I don't know how reputable any of them are, but random websites that rank like the top 10 Nigerian players of all time, the top 50. And of the six... That I uh, that I went to, Kanu was number one in five of them, and Okacha was number one in the other one. So it seems right. like Kanu is more of the consensus choice. I mean, John Obi Mikel is, if you want to narrow it down, if you want to narrow it down to ugly, ah, uh, and I mean ugly in the footballing style. Oh, I was going to say he's not. A, <laughs> no, he's a good-looking guy. No, I mean personal attack, unfounded, wrong, ugly, ugly, functional central midfielders that Mourinho would love, then he's your winner. Um, okay, uh, I am going to skip that question. I'm going to skip that question. I will get back to you next week. I am going to go to this question for our final question in the mailbag. Uh, this is from Chris Allen. Using only players from the Premier League era, what are your all-time Liverpool and Tottenham lineups? Are you picking them based on their talent at the time they were on the team, not what they did before or after? So those were the rules. I completely misread it. And I read incorrectly that Chris wanted our combined Tottenham and Liverpool teams from the Premier League era. And so I'm sticking with it. This is so hard. Uh, I kind of, I didn't really make an exact team. I sort of broke it down into categories. I have my, these are the players that to me have to be on the team. Um, Kane, Modric and Bale from Spurs. Suarez, Gerrard, Van Dijk from Liverpool. To me, like figure out a way to make it work. But those are the guys that have to be on it. Then my probablys, um, Jamie Carragher. Uh, I did put uh, Ledley King, um, assuming his knee is okay. And uh, JJ, I, I had a hard time with fullback. So I was like, you know what? I'll put Trent Alexander-Arnold on there as, as one of my probablys. Uh, and then I have a lot of question mark guys. Um, Robbie Fowler, Klinsman. Uh, Kyle Walker, Mo Salah. Um, what do you do in goal? Loris, Friedel, Allison, um, Christian Eriksen. Uh, there's a lot of like good players for both teams that I that I struggled with. Who are some? I'm curious where you took this. I I picked a formation. I picked a team. <laughs> I love this team that I've picked. I really uh, do. 
All right. So in goal, I just went with the European Cup winner, Alison Becker. But you're right. I could have gone with, I probably, I probably could have gone with Brad Friedel as well in that. But, but I think Becker, he's better with his feet. So Alison Becker in goal. Laurie's for, World Cup winning captain. Just going to throw that out there. That's, that, that's true too. He dropped been one. There, been, their, been their keeper for a generation. Yeah. I kicked one into the net in the World Cup final as well. But don't worry about that. You play um, big games, you're going to make some mistakes. It's the nature of the sport. <laughs> okay. Um, Alison Becker and goal. I'm playing a 4 1 2 3 formation. All right. So, so because I want to give width to my fullbacks, and you'll see why. I've got Trent Alexander Arnold at right back, Virgil van Dyke, and Ledley King in the middle. Okay. Look at us. We're Look at the way they're going to pass out of the back. It's going to be glorious. Um, I'm going to have Gareth Bale as the left. As, as at left back because he is going to be bombing forward. Now he played that position for like he when he first came to Spurs. That's what he was. That didn't last. Yeah, long. feels like. But it's, no, essentially my midfield is going to be a little bit narrow. Although my attack will be wide. But just bear with me. In the holding central midfield position, I've got Edgar Davids playing there. Um, oh, he's good. Yeah, I know he had only one really good season at Spurs, but okay, fine. Um, and then in the two, in behind my three, in the attacking midfield, I'm going to have Steven Gerrard and Teddy Sheringham. Okay. Two players I absolutely love. Gerrard will be an auxiliary kind of forward player arriving late into the box. And I think Sheringham can kind of play as a number 10 creative style. And my front three, on the right-hand side now, my front, uh, my two of these players will swap. One will play central. They'll be able to go wing to wing. Luis Suarez on the right. Dimitar Berbatov in the center. Over Harry Kane? Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. And Mohamed Salah on the left-hand side. Now, the left-hand side of my, of my team with Bale showing him Salah is a worry. Uh, Edgar Davids is going to be covering Bale a lot as he goes forward. But that's my team. Wow. Uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. I, would, I, I really like that team. Boy, the Berbatov choice is interesting. But uh, but what I a, but what a great player to watch! It's so uh, much fun, Andrew. And if you wanted to go direct to him, you could because he has the skill to control it. He'd release Salah. He'd release Suarez. He'd score goals himself. This would be sexual. <laughs> All right, who's your uh, who manages? Is it is it Klopp? Oh uh, no, I'm just giving it to Martin Yall so he can mess. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. That that was the mailbag, and I do apologize. We had questions about Garinka. We had questions about um, uh, who else have we? Zach Steffen. We had all those. Those will be in next next week's mailbag. I promise. I'm sorry, but we were going over time there because you know what happens right now, Andrew. Yeah, you have a new segment that you want to debut. Oh no 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 no, Andrew! You're so foolish. You really are. Oh, not what to watch for. Yes, it is. Here we go. Very quickly. <laughs> Oh, yes. Caught offside from a basement in Westchester and an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Oh, it's great to hear from you, Andrew. This is the highlight of the week for me. It's just, you are, I can't believe that your face, your very face, Andrew Gunling, is an oasis in my week. Uh, that's beautiful. I was thinking today that I, I, I miss you so dearly. I forget your, your musk, your smell. I was wondering if you could just like, like take a, a waff of yourself in some kind of envelope and send it to me just so I can have a piece of you here. 
Uh, Is I that the, the top three creepiest things I've ever said on the show? Well, as a former colleague of ours said once, you can turn anything into total creepiness, and you've succeeded again. By the way, you know how uh, paranoid I am about smells, so you probably can smell me from uh, Brooklyn. That's true. You walk into the, the studio routinely and put on deodorant. Which I find adorable that like, it's yeah, like almost you're trying to impress me in some way. Like we're like every each podcast for you is like a date. Uh, it is. I'm always trying to impress you. Andrew, I look up to you so much. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. Um, in fact, I, I, I look up I look I look up to you so much that uh I want to always smell fragrant for you, which is a weird thing for a dude to say to his best friend, but here we are. I think it's nice. I think we need more of that in these in these times. What a show we have for you coming up tonight. I'm actually very excited about this one. Um, we'll do some of the, uh, I guess, coronavirus-related discussion near the top of the show. MLS has made a, a somewhat important announcement um, that we'll talk about. Uh, the Premier League also floating some information that is interesting to us. And then CONCACAF and uh, even Sepp Blatter weighing in on future World Cups and how all of this could be impacted by various corruption scandals and so on and so forth. Um, and then JJ also in this podcast, because I don't want to get too in the weeds of coronavirus related discussion. I do have a new segment here called soccer only, Oh, which is, which is basically devoted to just like, it's almost like I'm pretending for a moment that this, none of this is happening and we can just talk like soccer stories. Uh, so I think that is a thing that people need desperately. So we're going to do a little bit of that. Uh, I saw your mailbag. It's beautiful. I'm really excited about some of the questions in it. And then near the end of the show, you have a new segment that you want to debut, which personally I think is a segment we could have been running for years now, but you've only decided to debut it today. Yeah, it's 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 short, it's sharp, it's snappy, it's zippy. It's for the modern modern kids who really want their information quickly and they want their hot takes hot. It's called JJ's Bad Opinions. Oh, and it. it's sponsored by Regular Beer. Yeah, I saw you're drinking what is literally called regular beer. Is that right? Which is, I mean, one of the most, it's one of the more hipster things I've seen because hipster culture has now done a full 180 where no longer is it hipster to be drinking like, because there was a time, what would you say, like 15 years ago where like Blue Moon was hipster and like pumpkin ales and things like that. But now we've had to, we've that like hipsters have to be ahead of the curve. So once mainstream culture catches up with pumpkin and, and, orange flavored beers and things like that. And even IPAs now hipster needs to move away and back to what is just straight up normal, just like a a can. And it says regular beer on it. And now it's almost as though that can of beer has grown its own full length beard. It's that hipster. Indeed it has. And it's wearing skinny jeans and is dressed like a 19th century cobbler. So when will, I'm curious now, when will hipster culture move away from long beards and flannel? Like, when will we go back to... It's already happened, man. It's already happened, man. Uh, think of your uncle in the mid-90s and what he wore. Stonewashed jeans, turned up at the bottom with new chunky New Balance sneakers. Every girl in Brooklyn is wearing those on the street right now. It's a kind of offshoot of normcore. So this is what's happening. It's already turned, and you didn't even notice because you're sat there in your Syracuse hoodie living a different life to everybody else. Yeah, I do me. If I want to wear sweatpants and hoodies seven days a week, that's what I'm going to do right now. I have, a request. We're at. I have a request. May I do you just for one second? And that sounds weird. But l- last week you asked me for one thing that made me happy. 
And I, I just wanted to cram this in right now before we start with the COVID-19 talk. Well, I'll tell um, you what, I don't mean to cut you off, but you don't need to cram it in because I actually have a talking point within our MLS discussion that relates exactly to what you're about to say. What do you mean? You'll see. Let's just get into it now. Uh, so uh, I'll get to it in one second. It, it's it's MLS related. You'll see. Don't worry. You have that's a very not what. That's got nothing to do with what's making me happy right now. Absolutely. No, not. but you talking about things that make you happy is going to be part of this MLS discussion. You, it'll all make sense. Just right. just trust me. All right. We've all been right. doing this for a long time. Just know to trust me. All right. My life all is right. in your hands. <laughs> uh, let's start now with MLS. Um, as is the case with all leagues around the world and here in the United States domestically with various professional sports leagues, they're all trying to figure out uh, a way to make it happen, when to make it happen, what kind of timeline is safe to operate on. Uh, MLS is obviously no different. Uh, Speaking to Taylor Twellman, uh, Don Garber spoke about some ideas regarding getting the season in. He said uh, from tournament formats and neutral locations, uh, ultimately playing an abridged regular season, but doing everything to get as many games. We might be playing further into the winter, Garber said. That's even hard to imagine because we had a zero Celsius MLS Cup in Toronto in mid-December in 2017, but we're going to have to push this season as far as we can so that we can crown a champion in 2020. Uh, then there was a report today from the Sports Business Journal and The Athletic that it appears June 8th is now the target date for when they would like to try to start up a season. This was This has been moved back from what was previously mid-May. Uh, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here straight out of the gate, but I will tell you right now, June 8th feels very optimistic to me, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're sitting here a month from now and they're making another announcement about moving that date back. I don't understand um, this need to give any date or any timeline. Just like keep it vague. I don't know like if they actually believe, if they truly believe that June 8th we're going to be playing soccer in some form or if they're doing that to try to keep fans' interest uh, at a level where it feels like that's digestible, like that June 8th isn't that far away, like two months or so. I don't know, but I just, we're we're operating in a world of total uncertainty right now when it comes to sports being able to take place. So, I, I mean, maybe they know more than I do. Uh, I hope they do, but I just don't understand the need to assign any date to, to any league right now. No, you're leaving yourself a hostage to fortune. I I don't know. Is it to placate fans? Is it to keep fans interested? Returning to the website and the Twitter feed, I I don't understand it. Um, now I, I suppose it, you, where I'm at, Andrew, is give all the dates you want. The data and the virus itself will dictate when sports return. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That is really how I feel about it. Um, now. Yesterday, or rather today, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said this on the on general sports returning, not just MLS. He said, there's a way of doing that. Nobody comes to the stadium. Put players in big hotels wherever you want to play. Keep them very well surveilled. Have them tested every single week and make sure they don't wind up infecting each other or their family and just let them play the season out. Now, that's kind of in line with what President Trump was saying yesterday, mentioning the return of sports uh, during Tuesday's daily briefing. And he said he would be talking to the heads of the major U.S. sports. So Fauci's comments are broadly in line with what the administration are tentatively talking about in terms of opening up, opening up or reopening many areas of American life. But, Andrew, there's other experts who are much less positive about sports reopening. Um 
Stephanie Epstein wrote a piece in Sports Illustrated where she spoke to Zach Binney, a PhD in epidemiology at Emory. Uh, his main point of the article, which you can read um, online, he totally ruled out the possibility of any sports with fans in stadiums returning until we have a vaccine. He goes on to say the idea of a quarantine sports league that can still go on sounds really good in theory, but it's a lot harder to pull off in practice than most people appreciate. And here's the key point he makes. He talks about logistics of quarantine leagues. We've certainly heard things about MLB. He says it's very difficult to negotiate even a quarantined league and the key issue of testing and quick results for athletes and staff. That is a huge thing. We don't have enough testing for all the major leagues to come back, there's going to be a real strain on the medical profession, which will have to be on site for these games. And um, just the time lag between getting tested and athlete getting tested and then being deemed okay to play and mix with other athletes will cause huge problems. Yeah. So, uh, and I hate reading out that laundry list of woe, but it's it's just true, man. I I, I think... I think Don Garber putting a date on it, I, I don't understand it. I think any any person in charge or an administrator of a major league in America right now, I, I think you just got to hold fire and, and, and wait and see what the data says. Yeah. Now, I will say this. Um, I do like where his head is at in terms of kind of like a steely determination to crown a champion. Like he says in the quote that I read to Taylor Twelman, but we're going to have to push this season as far as we can so that we can crown a champion in 2020. Um, so when you actually, like, cause we talked about how with the premier league to me, that's not an option, but MLS has only played two games. If they wanted to abandon the season, you know, it would be disappointing, but no one would really have personal gripes over it. Now I'm sure there's financial figures attached to that kind of decision that doesn't necessarily affect fans that uh, affects teams and the league greatly. So, you know, I, I'm not so blind as to not see that aspect of this. Um, but you know, I was thinking more about, I guess, what the timeline would be. So let's say that June 8th is actually, like that week is actually when games are able to start up. Um, if they play a full season and they play roughly one game per week, we're talking about um, postseason ending probably somewhere in the late February, early March vicinity, which just feels not doable but andrew it it would if they're if they're gonna try out and play a full season which i don't think they are because garber is already sprinkling in mentions of tournament style world cup style whatever it takes to get it done which i believe mls should embrace look nobody in this world of sports can do gimmicks better than america and there is for me an ncaa basketball style tournament for MLS, if needs be, that can be run off over a month is something that they will try and look at. Now, soccer is different, obviously, uh, but not that much different. I mean, if they're going to play every game, Andrew, you're looking at a championship style Saturday, Tuesday or Sunday, Wednesday format. Yeah, I think, that, we, I think the World Cup style is a thing that soccer fans in this country would embrace. I really do. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's... I think that's manageable and, you know, fans here are familiar with a format like that. Obviously I think that that's something that, that they should start to, to hone in on. 
I think so too. And I, and I think American soccer fans will embrace it. I will embrace it, you know, because I'm always moaning. There's too many games in MLS I feel are totally irrelevant. Uh, and I want to get to the postseason as quick as possibly as, as possible. Well, your your whole season might be some some level of post. Yeah, like, and that could be fun. Like I, I'm picturing the draw for how teams are seated against one another. Like that, I don't. I could see it being an event that that MLS fans would get behind. I really do. Um, now there was something else that I saw. I was at uh, MLSsoccer.com. I was at their website, um, and I thought this was this was good and healthy to have up there. Uh, there was an article there with the San Jose Earthquakes team psychologist, oh. Dr. Uh, Dr. Jerry Lynch. And he's basically talking, uh, it's not even really a soccer article. It was almost, uh, it's really only on that website because he is an employee of the San Jose Earthquakes. But he's basically talking about kind of the mental battle being waged in the minds of a lot of Americans right now, specifically parents. Um, I wanted to read to you some of what he said because some of it is, is interesting to me. Uh, He said, this is a crisis, but this is also an opportunity. Parents need to be reminded, what is the opportunity here? I want them to wake up in the morning, think about seven things they're grateful for. Imagine that. What a way to start the day. You imagine that feeling, uh, breathing it into your heart. Now go about your day. Make it a reflection of everything you've been given. With your kids home, be aware, be mindful. This is an opportunity to really deeply connect with your kids. Um, JJ, I think that's beautiful. Start the day, you wake up, you open your eyes, and you think, what are the seven things that I'm grateful for today? So I figured this was the moment for you to be able to say whatever it is that you were going to say at the start of the show. Oh, that's brilliant, man. Absolutely. What I was going to say at the start of the show was, uh, you know, I got pretty down in the middle of last week, as a lot of people did. Um, And I guess what I saw over Passover was I went on Twitter one night and I saw so many people that were... It was like the Brady Bunch frame that were doing satyrs via Zoom. And so you had all the squares. And it, I, I didn't see one or two. I saw like there was hundreds of them. And it, it was amazing. And it made me think about technology and how this beautiful communal moment still happened. Look, I, it wasn't ideal. You know yourself. It, it was far from ideal. But it still happened. And I thought how grateful I am that on Sunday when I wanted to contact my mom, I could see her, she could see me, and I was just grateful for the technology that we have now. And I thought, what if this had happened, this this pandemic had happened in 1995 or 2000? Think how different our interactions would be. I know human beings find a way, but at the same time, um, it just made me grateful that at this moment we have this ready-made technology that everyone could be together for Passover and everyone could contact, contact each other over the weekend for, for Easter And it made me feel better that every day I know I will be able to get in touch with the people I love. That is very nice. Allow me to break your heart. Oh. Um, (laughs) So my family is one of those that did a Passover Seder Hmm. via Zoom. And so we are going about it. And, you know, it's it is what it is. Like, at least you can see each other and communicate and and do, you know, whatever it is you're going to do. And um, Jack, who is four. Yeah. And is typically a chatterbox was eerily quiet. And, you know, we're kind of just like, you know, playing with him a little bit at the table, trying to get him to like loosen up. But you can see he has this look on his face that's really sullen. Oh, and no. all of a sudden, uh, he just bursts out crying. And we said, what's wrong? And like my parents and my sister on the, the video chat also noticed. And we said, what's wrong? And he just, it all just hit him. 
He can't do, we've tried to do FaceTime play dates, things like that. He can't do it anymore. Uh. And it hit him in this moment. And he started crying and he said, I just want everyone to be here alive. Oh, it's so sweet. It was sweet. And it was horribly sad to try to like to in that moment, get in the mind of how a four-year-old is processing this and how it just kind of hit him. Um, And it was, so you're right. I think like we can handle zoom chats, FaceTime chats, things like that. But it, I, I put myself in the, like in the mind of, of children and how they're digesting this. And it must just be so confusing that all of a sudden they just woke up one day and couldn't play with their friends anymore. And like, they don't know why, like Jack talks about the virus. He talks about his stuffed animals all the time, making sure that they don't get the virus. And you know, you know, his Teddy has the virus. Like it's, it's, Ugh. it's sad. It's truly sad. Okay. Now, now the other thing that this, that the psychologist from San Jose earthquake said, he talks more about kids and I'm just curious if our listeners out there who have kids like myself, how they would relate to this. I have a seven-month-old and a four-year-old. He says here, maybe set up a schedule with your kids. Say every morning between 9 and 10.30, we're going to go for a walk, or we're going to play board games, or we'll do homework together. Maybe kids can have a role in cooking dinner. Uh, he goes on and talks about the importance of of that. Um, I can tell you we've tried. Like It's one of those things that's so easy to put down in writing. We've tried everything. A four, uh, first of all, a seven month old is what it is. Like they just, you can't do really much, but like Jack says, uh, uh-uh, uh, I don't want to go for a walk. Like what, like what do we, what do you do? Like, I, I feel like a lot of people who have elementary school age kids, middle school age kids, it, you can get maybe a better handle on it because they have schoolwork. They can play video games by themselves. I'm drowning. Like this is getting really, really hard and it's no one's fault. It's not Jack's fault. It's not Luke's fault. They're great kids but it's just the nature of their age. Like, I wonder if there's other parents that have kids of a similar age that are feeling like this is, this is really, really difficult to, to just go about your day, just like from waking up to going to bed. It's also genetics. You are indeed a difficult, difficult man to deal with. I won't argue that. That's fair. Sorry for Uh, making fun of your, your traumatic situation, but (laughs) look, we're healthy. I mean, ultimately that's what matters, but you know, this is, I'm just reading the psychologist and the stuff he said, and I'm like, yeah, like that all sounds great. But in actual everyday practice, like we tried to homeschool Jack. No, like he doesn't associate home with school. Like no, school is school. Home is play. Yeah. It's like, I'd be just, I'd be curious. Other parents with young kids, how are you dealing with this? Tweet myself or the show account. I'm just curious to make sure I'm not alone in in just like feeling how difficult it's been for a parent of two young kids at a gundling at CEO soccer pod for your kid issues. Now, uh, the European leagues, I I don't have much else on MLS and their schedule. I wanted to switch over to English football saying that, uh, MLS had said June 8th. I wonder if they were taking cues from England, which is now targeted June 6th as their return date. Uh, I guess I would just echo the same thing that I feel about MLS for the premier league championship league one, so on and so forth. To me, it doesn't feel realistic, but I'll just have to assume that they're operating on different information than I am. But for a second here, JJ, let's put aside the football aspect. Cause you kind of covered that, the difficulty of, of that being a thing. Uh, I'm kind of curious about the fan element here. I think everyone right now is operating under the, the assumption that, Sports will resume, but fans will simply not be a part of it for the foreseeable future. Um, Now, what foreseeable future entails is subjective. And I want to read you something which, to me, 
it kind of whatever whatever optimism I felt from reading all this stuff about MLS June eighth, Premier League June sixth, like that's good. I want sports back. I want to watch sports again. Um, but that optimism was kind of dampened when I read this. Um, I read this in the USA Today earlier in the week. Um, uh, I said, speaking as part of a New York Times panel discussion about how to restart America amid the coronavirus pandemic, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who advised the Obama administration on health policy, said he did not think large gatherings would be possible until after a vaccine is widely distributed in 12 to 18 months. Uh, He says larger gatherings, conferences, concerts, sporting events. When people say they're going to reschedule this conference or graduation event for October 2020, I have no idea how they think that's a plausible possibility, Emanuel told the Times. I think those things will be the last to return. And listen to this. He says, realistically, we're talking fall 2021 at the earliest. That's it's just sad to me. I'll enjoy the return of sports. Um, but I've said before, especially in soccer, where atmosphere is huge, fan culture is huge, both for MLS, international, European, whatever, all of it. Uh, the thought of that not existing for another year and a half is just wild to think about. Yep, it is wild, Andrew. And look, sport is the most important thing of the least important things. But okay. Um, and, and, and so that's the way if you're in, in, a, in the position of someone, an expert like that, that's the way they have to view things. And that's the way they do view things. It's tremendously sad. Um, but this is the reality now. I, I, I honestly like the Bundesliga. There was a report two weeks ago. They've they've written off having fans in the stadium. At least that's what they're saying to each other amongst each other. They haven't made uh, they haven't made a declarative statement on that yet. But they're preparing for no fans in the stadium. That's just the way it is. And um, this is the new reality. We have to get our heads around now until that joyous day that we can all be back in the ground. Yeah, and unfortunately, as much as I don't want it to be, I feel like we're almost, you're kind of left with this like this feeling of that it's the way that it has to be. Yeah. You know? By the way, this isn't, this isn't fear. This isn't all, oh, well, you know, we're just we're we're being overly cautious, or you know, we're we're erring on the side of caution. It's none of that. It's the way it has to be for a highly communicable virus. Yeah, um, it will be interesting to kind of hear soccer. You know, like the fans, and it's a good thing. Fans typically drown out most of the communication on the field. Oh. It is one element of the game that will be interesting. It'll be an awakening moment for a lot of soccer fans. Oh, it will. Absolutely. To hear the thwack of a ball being, being clipped down the line to hear, um, to hear the amount of talk that goes on in the game. It never ends. And I remember when I, I first played my first game of soccer after playing Gaelic football. And I, I, I actually came late to playing soccer. I was 14. I couldn't believe how much the center back talked to me throughout the game. I couldn't believe how much the midfielder was talking to me. And these were guys who were, um, at that point in their careers, were seasoned pros, if you know what I mean. Uh, Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I should say that there is breaking news from the UK. Um, The Scottish lower league club, so everything below the premiership, have voted to end the season. So that's it. Yeah, Dundee had the deciding vote, and they voted yes to end the season. So teams were just relegated on a vote. I'm, I haven't read the details. I've just seen it for USA, from USA Today, um, and that's Boy. it. 
That's so um, harsh. Incredibly harsh. I mean, I don't know. To me, it's, I've said it's the one option that I'm, that I'm really not in favor of um, is just relegating teams in that manner. So three teams have been declared champions. Dundee United in the second tier championship, Wraith Rovers in the third tier, and Cove Rangers in the fourth tier. And one team from each division is getting relegated without the season being completed. That's on USA Today. So there we are. Well, I'd have to look at those tables. I don't know the Scottish lower league tables. Maybe maybe they were able to do that because the whoever is bottom right now is just so clearly bottom that it's not like even that team couldn't debate I, it. I, I would very much doubt that's the case in, in across the three leagues. I haven't looked at the tables myself, but the fact they're doing this is uh, is interesting. Wow. Um, we'll see if that sets any kind of precedent moving forward. Uh, and then moving to international football, we haven't really begun to think about how this might affect the 2022 World Cup, because for whatever reason, that still feels far away. Um, although now you're starting to think more about it. It's kind of not. So uh, just this past week, Victor Montagliani, the president of CONCACAF, he says that the qualifying process for CONCACAF might have to change um, because of this. And I just wonder how how worrisome something like that is for an event that's held every four years with the prestige of a World Cup and what's at stake for these nations to get in. You just hope that however it is changed, it, it has to maintain the integrity of the of the qualifying process to the best of its ability. Well, that's absolutely right. And to be fair to him, that is what he honed in on in his comments. This is from the 18. Um, he said this was regarding teams who have lost out, which is the most, this is the most interesting thing for me. Regarding teams who have lost out on the chance to improve their rankings due to the cancelled Nations League games, Montagliani said that, to be honest, brings in a snippet of an integrity issue when teams haven't been able to play. What we're committed to is ensuring the format, whatever the format will be, has to fit into what the new calendar is going to look like and also be done from a sporting standpoint. Now that, actually, I said to be fair to him, I don't know what that even means. That's that's a word salad of sporting terms. We may have to look, he goes on, we may have to look at reformatting what this looks like, whether this is a hexagonal or some other shape that is part of a kid's block set. But we don't, <laughs> What we don't know is what this thing will look like. Finally, he gets to the point. He doesn't have a clue. He he recognizes the integrity issue. They went and they made this thing, and they couldn't have predicted there'd be a COVID-19 that would emerge on the horizon to scupper their plans. But they made up this thing where the FIFA rankings would become paramount, and now they're, they're, they're falling on their sword on that decision. It was the wrong decision, and there we are. Yeah. Um, now, for those who are curious, so the hex was set to begin. Uh, match day one was August 31st, uh, and then it runs for literally one year over the course of five different international breaks, um, two match days per international break, 10 different match days total. And it runs from basically August 31st right through the beginning of September of 2021. Um, that, like like he said, it, it's gonna, it seems like that's going to change. Uh, just because, but how? I mean, it's it, it's an intense how? amount of it's just an intense amount of travel to like it, it's one thing to be it, this is the the problem that the Champions League was faced with. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to get a handle within the United States, but like, what will things be like in Mexico? What will they be like in Central America or the or the Caribbean? Like, it, it's there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, I don't I don't have. I don't Andrew, have a, I, I, have, 
I have no clue how. There's not even a point wasting any time on this. I have no clue how they cram in so much. And they made this a monster. Like they made one part streamline to get the good teams into the into the the hex. Um and they made the rest of it this like large thing to try and also get yourself in and uh, into the the main part of qualifying. Like the way it was I'm sure it was imperfect for some people, but it was fine. It was better than this. I didn't have a problem with how it was. I didn't. Create- I didn't see why it needed to change. Quite frankly, no. All right, um, but uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I have right now on the uh, in the coronavirus portion of the show. Let's get to the football, Andrew. Let's go. Come on, I'm Parker only. Um, so I, yeah, I wanted to make sure we basically devoted at least at least one segment to just straight up kind of like soccer conversation. Uh, so I'm taking this from uh, – it was on ESPN FC's front page yesterday. Uh, so that that would be Tuesday based on when you're listening to this. Uh, Mark Ogden had a column up at ESPN FC about United, Manchester yeah. United. Uh, and basically whether – which target to prioritize. Because the, the guys that they've been linked with really for a, a while now, you've heard Harry Kane's name attached to Manchester United seems like for a couple of years. Uh, never really been taken seriously, but now it is based on some of Kane's recent comments. Uh, and then also Jaden Sancho, um, who's been brought in. So talking about those two guys, Daniel Levy has apparently said that Harry Kane, if you're going to take him from Tottenham, okay, he's all yours for $200 million, which is just an astounding number, especially as we enter a financial climate that is going to be compromised by what's happened with the coronavirus. So um, that number doesn't feel realistic to me, but the point remains, whether it's 200 million or not, it's still going to be an extraordinarily high number to pry him away from Tottenham. Um, so here is my thinking, and then I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Um, like on the surface, it feels somewhat simple to me, but I think it's deeper than that. Kane, so Harry Kane is at a point now where his career is starting to get drastically impacted by injuries. Uh, over the last three and a half years, he's missed roughly a quarter of Tottenham's games due to injury, which is significant. Um, he's going to be 27 in a few months, so he's in the dead center of his prime right now. Jaden Sancho just turned 20, hasn't sniffed his prime yet. So if you're looking at that and you're assuming that the price is going to be roughly similar or the same for both, you would tend to say that it's Sancho and it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Now, now here's why. Here's the only thing I would throw in there as to why it may not necessarily be a no-brainer. Let's say Kane's prime continues uh, from his current age of 27 to, I'd say, I'll be, I'll, I'll say 31. So let's give him like four more seasons of of prime Harry Kane, and then you start to get the tail off. Uh, that's four solid seasons of one of the great goal scorers in the Premier League's history. Now look at Sancho. What do you think is going to happen if he continues to play at this sort of pace? Well, in maybe less than four years, the four years of Harry Kane's prime, you might get less than that of Jadon Sancho before Real Madrid or Barcelona or PSG or, hell, Newcastle with their new ownership before one of these clubs come calling. So that's the only reason why it's not a no-brainer. I still say that it's Sancho um, that you go with simply because when Kane's prime is up, what do you do with him? You're going to have to sell him at a loss or you're going to have to stash him on your bench as maybe some kind of late-game sub. Sancho, if you do sell him on to Real Madrid or Barcelona, you'll make an extraordinary amount of money if he continues to play at this level. So I still go with him. I, I, I We're also laboring under the um, the presumption that Sancho wants a return 
to Manchester. Well, I don't know that either of these guys. Uh, I'm throwing these are hypotheticals that I'm throwing out there purely off of Mark Ogden's article. Uh, I read. I, I read the article. I think it's an absolute no-brainer. I think you you thank Harry Kane for his time and you cash in now while while the going is good. Sa- you also have to look at if you're Manchester United, what kind of team do you want to build? Do you want this kind of like? Let's be honest. Kane is moving into. Uh, <laughs> Would Kane operate in a kind of a fluid front three? Like like Solskjaer seems to be moving United, not so much towards a Liverpool plan, but certainly a team that operates with a fluid, um, energetic front three. And I'm not sure Kane fits into that. And would, that doesn't necessarily have a central striker. Also, what does Jadon Sancho give you outside of goals? He gives you a ton of assists, Andrew. Um, in the Bundesliga, never mind the Champions League or... Uh, the DFL Super Cup this season, 14 goals, 16 assists. Like 16 assists and 14 goals is just... What a player. And he's 20. He just turned 20 a month ago. Or yeah. I, I I think it's a no-brainer to go with Sancho. You're buying yeah. him at 20, 21 years of age. I think you've got all those years ahead. Like you said, you have the option to move on if you needed to. Um I just think he gives you more, Andrew. I, I really do. If you need to play him out like in a wide position, you can play him there. If you, he can tuck inside, play him more centrally. I think with the way the game is going, I mean, there's also the statistics about Kane kind of maybe moving away from, from that peak form that he had. Injuries as well is a huge thing. Yeah. I'm not doing it, Andrew. I'm going with Sancho. Yeah, and I've thought more about what you said um, two weeks ago how when you asked me that question of whether or not it's, it would maybe be the right time for Tottenham to move on from Harry Kane, how that's it's a very hard thing for a Spurs fan who's so loyal to him to reconcile. But, I mean, if the if that, I was going to say if that's the price tag, I think you have to do it. But that's not – I don't know that that's a realist. So he's, he's going to be more expensive coming off of injuries and being 27 years old than what Neymar was. When he's when not, bought him, like I don't see that. That's unreal. That's unrealistic, and I don't. I don't honestly think when if if it came to uh, excuse the phrase talking turkey about a Kane transfer, I don't think anyone is 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 putting two hundred million on the table. So so let me give you another hypothetical of another player who's been talked about as being on Manchester United's radar. So let's say you can let's throw whatever financial figures you've read so far. Let's throw those out the window and let me and just go off of this. You can either have just Sancho, or you can have Kane and Grealish. Um, just Sancho. Wow. Yeah, just Sancho. As good a player as Grealish is, I think that creative attacking um, guy who can pick locks and pick passes—that is, uh, how would I put it? And it's not, and they're not—they're not similar players entirely, but that is served right now by Bruno Fernandes. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not changing that. I think you've 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 committed to Fernandez. He's looked good so far, and I really like Grealish, but I think he's a better fit somewhere else. I think a bigger problem for United is is a defensive midfielder to replace uh, Matic, and also another midfielder to replace possibly Paul Pogba, and um, and that we would don't know not, what's going on there. Yeah, well, that would not be. That would not be Jack Grealish. That's my view. Okay. Uh, and then one other one I saw that really I enjoyed reading this story. Josh Sargent, uh, he was speaking about the U.S. men's national team and kind of this youth movement, and he called it, quote, a dream situation. Um, 
And to me, that sounded, I don't know, it sounded a little bit dramatic. It sounded a little bit kind of like young guy caught up in a fun moment, but sort of thinking more about it. So if you're Josh Sargent or any of these young guys for the U.S., I think dream situation, like they think of things in terms of World Cup appearances. Right. So the World Cup is going to be in the United States in 2026. Let me read to you the ages of some of these young players for the U.S. when the World Cup is here. Sargent will be 26. Uh, Pulisic will be 27. McKinney, 27. Tyler Adams, 27. Gio Reyna, 23. Serginho Dest, 25. Tim Weah, 26. JJ, there is a core of players who, when the World Cup is in this country, are going to be dead center, thick of their prime. I could see why Josh Sargent looks at something like that and and I'm just reading into it. He didn't mention the World Cup specifically, but I'm just saying like that that would be kind of a cool thought in my head that all these young guys who are coming up together, all experiencing the same things. They're all, a lot of young guys playing abroad, roughly the same age, most of them in the same country, playing abroad in Germany. They're kind of all going through this together, and they're yeah. and they're kind of like you know the last generation went out on such a low note that I feel like the country is so behind this young core because they're so excited for this next group to come through and sort of wipe away what was a bad memory in Trinidad. So I, I could see these guys, I could see him calling this a dream situation. Andrew, here's some of the guys who'll be 23, 22, 23, 24 in that direction as well. Uh, Conrad De La Fuente at Barcelona, Barcelona, Soto at Hanover, Ledesma at PSV, Reina at Dortmund, Lionez at Wolfsburg. This is a really great crop of prospects. But let me just say this. When you are 19 and 1920, 20, as Josh Sargent is, you think about the now and you think that the now is what will be in four or five years time. Let it's me tell true. you, yeah. let me tell you that I would say out of all the guys, I listed eight guys, including Sargent, Adams, McKinney, Dest, and then the ones I just named there. That's eight guys. That's eight unbelievable prospects who are currently in the ranks of the top teams in the Bundesliga and in Holland. Okay, that's fine. It doesn't stay like that. If we get four of those guys through to senior who haven't fallen by the wayside, haven't succumbed to some kind of injury or form or a manager or a bad loan or something like that, we'll be doing well. It just doesn't pan out like that. And right now we have a great crop of you players coming through but we can only talk about it right now. You're right. Um, but I do think it's important to, to note that it does feel like the pool is larger in terms of guys under the age of, say, 22 who are getting consistent run in European leagues. Well, it seems that way. It is. It is that way. <laughs> and we're talking about like Chris Richards, Alex Mendez, you know, right. Fuente. Like there, there are other ones that we haven't even talked about. Right, and, I, and and some of the guys I mentioned, like uh, Lionez has not made a senior debut for Wolfsburg, uh, De La Fuente at Barca, and Soto at Hanover in the same boat. But I'm just saying, you are you are correct. Like, even senior guys who are playing in the top leagues, yeah, we, we have a nice crop of them. We really do. And um, it, it, it does feel good, and it is exciting. I just, yeah. you know, Can, I urge I'm, caution. I'm, the the yeah. percentages are against... I have one thing that, because I'm so, I just have this this pull towards negativity. I don't know what it is inside of me that does this, but 
Um, so I was looking at this and I was thinking the only thing aside from the unknown injuries, stuff like that, that you can't predict the only thing that worries me. So what was some of like in, in the last run of us men's national team, like the Fabian Johnson, Timmy Chandler, Jermaine Jones, those years, what's some of what we heard that there was kind of like clicks that formed. The, maybe like the the, Ameri- the German Americans, the MLS guys. I just hope that that doesn't happen again. That you have this group of young players who are all coming up together playing in Europe. I hope that that doesn't become one click, and then there's an MLS core that is another click, and it kind of like eats away whatever team chemistry there is. I hope that that whoever the if it's still Bearhalter, you know, or whoever the team captain is at that point, like. There will be work to be done to ensure that something like that doesn't happen. Especially, Andrew, when it's increasingly likely or at least plausible that you can pick an 11 without a single MLS player in. Uh, right now, you mean? Not, or- not right now, in the future. Well, maybe. I mean, we'll see. Like, Right, we know. have to see how these careers pan out. But you're right, and it is disappointing, and... I think any manager Not is going to get nothing's happened yet. No, you're you want to see guys. I can see his face right now. His <laughs> face has fallen. He's seen a vision of the future. He's like Sarah Connor in the Terminator when she has these flashbacks or flash forwards to what's going to happen. You, you are, you live on the, on the darker side of the town, my friend constantly. Well, let me bring you back up. Did you read while we're talking us men's soccer? Uh, did you read the piece in the Athletic about Clint Dempsey? I did. Um, what well, I, mean, I love, I, I, if it was possible, for, I didn't even know it was possible for me to love him even more post retirement, and yet what, I, I do. What he said to Mark Hughes when he was left out of the team for Hughes's first league game was amazing. He basically told him, "If you think I'm not one of the best eleven players at this club," You're crazy. But first of all, he was 100% right. But just like, I don't know, I I sometimes have this image of American players going over and playing in the Premier League and sort of just... Being being deferential. Kind of. Just like, okay, I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to grind and I'm going to work my way to the first team. But like, I feel like what you don't often hear about is that brashness. And then later in the article, it talks about him almost getting in a fight with Martin Yol, where they were nose to nose after Martin Yol gave a weird speech to the Fulham players about like they don't play for money. You all have enough money that you could we could put it at midfield and it would burn for months, something like that. You don't need money. And Clint Dempsey was basically like, "No, I need, I want money. I don't have that money yet." And so he basically said to him, "What, what did he say to Martin Yol? Sell, sell me to Liverpool right now." Because like, I want a piece of that money, like, and he's nose to nose with him at midfield. Like, these story, like this guy, what a competitor! Oh my god! I and again, it, there was a great ESPN. Um, I think it was ESPN uh, E60. Yeah, about him. He gave up a lot in his personal life. He saw a lot of tragedy, mm-hmm. so he could be where he was, where he is right now, or where he was then. And uh, I think it definitely fuels him. And by the way. This is not this is not bluster. This is not American braggadociousness. This is actual fact. He never didn't back up what he could do. He was every he was every inch the player he thought he was. One hundred percent. Yeah, I just love the guy. They talk so much about this. They all 
to a man, it seemed like every person who was asked about him talked about the switch, the switch that would go off with him off the field, laid back guy, you know, but on the field, like Eddie, Eddie Johnson uh, was one of his best friends. And who was it? Landon Donovan telling a story about how like Clint Dempsey would scream just like the most awful things to him uh, during training. Uh, and then like, I guess Eddie could handle it because they were so tight. And then like afterwards in the locker room, it'd be like, nothing happened. I, I don't know that I have that personality. Like if you like during a podcast scream something awful to me, it would, it would sit with me. It would fester. It would affect you and I like, not everyone can handle that. Me and you, I have me, as a teammate. Me and you have a nice relationship though. In fairness, we can't say some horrible stuff to each other, usually off air. <laughs> And it's fine, though, because we, we know where we're coming from. I mean, you made the most vicious joke about the Irish potato famine. I'll, I'll never. You take that back. Right I now. take it back right now. That never happened. You but if you, you could say that to me, it would be no problem. That's the kind of relationship we have. Andrew, just before we go to, uh, we leave soccer only and go to the mailbag, um, this is worth mentioning. I, I want to say right now, I don't know what it means for the future, but we were just talking about the youth side of things and, and America's quite frankly, bountiful production of top-class players playing in Germany and Holland and, and across Europe. Uh, this is from The Athletic. Uh, the United States Soccer Federation is expecting to announce the termination of its development academies on the boys' and girls' sides. Um, the development academies featured close to 200 clubs with teams competing from U12 to U18 level and including all of the current MLS teams. And uh, they had just announced that they were... It's 13 years old, uh, the Development Academy, and they just talked about adding in Nashville and uh, Phoenix Rising as the new entrance, and now the board of U.S. Soccer are scrapping that. So I'm not going to jump on their backs because there needs to be something to replace this. Right. I was going to say, what fills that vacuum? And we don't know yet. Yeah. Um, but it seems very, very strange. I just wanted to add that we're, we're you know, I'm tracking it. I'm trying to understand what it's about but it seems like a, a strange move for me. Yeah. I saw that like just before we went on. Um, I don't, I, I assume they have a new plan for going forward, that this is not the death of integrated youth soccer in America. It can't, no, it can't be. It can't be. Uh, all right. Mailbag. What do you have Ma- here? Mail busy. Um, at CEO soccer pod on Twitter, please follow us. Caught offside pod at gmail.com is the email. And on the Instagram, that the kids love. It's caught offside ESPN. Starting out quickly with just a shout out, uh, Luke underscore Anzaldo. He put me in uh, in contact with UEFA.TV. I was unaware, UEFA.TV, Andrew, if you're bored and you need to go back and get a classic game from either the European Championships or the UEFA Champions League, UEFA.TV has a ton of them. At the weekend, I watched England 4, Holland 1 from Euro 96. And this weekend, I'm going to watch the Welsh and their famous quarterfinal win over the Belgians in uh, Euro 2016. Next question um, comes from Chase on Twitter. Chase asks, what broke JJ's heart more, Henri's handball goal versus Ireland or Gerard's slip? Amazing question. I actually don't know what you're going to say. Can I guess before you actually give your answer? Go ahead. So I would say that the answer should be the Ireland handball, but I think for you it will be Gerard's slip. 
You're correct. It was Gerard's slip. And I think there's two, there's a main reason, obviously, because Liverpool were so close to the title. It was a game in which they didn't even need to win because they had two winnable games against Palace and Newcastle to come. And also because it happened to the guy most associated with the club, the club legend player. For that to befall him, pardon the pun, was terrible. Um, but I also think it was because I could directly and immediately bathe in the misery of that Liverpool moment in a way that I couldn't with Thierry Henry's handball. So for Thierry Henry's handball, I was in uh, New Jersey. I was coaching soccer. I went to the Dublin house in Red Bank on the way to Manalapan, and I watched the game there, and I was stunned by everything that happened. But with the time difference and the fact I had to coach my U16 boys team, I never got a chance to drink it all in at that moment. And the next day, I was, you know, I was obviously on the internet, I was calling people back home, but, and I was upset, but it, it just didn't seem to be the same. You know what I did for, for the, that Chelsea game in 2014, Andrew? No, what? I watched the game at home because I was hungover and I just didn't want to be around, be around people because I knew it was such a big game. I get that. And after it happened, I needed consolation. So I went to the 12th Street Bar, the Liverpool Football Club NY Supporters Club Bar. I went there after the game. Why? Because misery needs company. I'm so with you, yeah. And I just went into the bar, and you think of how early people drink in this country watching Premier League soccer. There was just a mass of emotional bodies strewn across the place, bleary-eyed and desperate and sad. And I, I had three or four drinks among them because I needed it. Well, I needed it because of the hair of the dog to get over my hangover. But I also needed it. And um, and you know what killed me, Andrew? The hope. The hope that even if we didn't somehow, you know, endure Palace and Newcastle. And, you know, it was pretty obvious that City were going to win out at that point And we weren't going to win the league when it was in our grasp. Um, people were talking about next season. And what we do, and I knew Suarez wouldn't be there next season. I knew it in my heart. And the disappointment was so crushing. Gerard Tamball, that was the worst. No, Henri, uh, the, the only reason I said I thought I think it should be the Henri handball is, A, it's a once-every-four-year competition. Right. Uh, but aside from that, I feel like there's just – I feel like when, when, when a player does something wrong, it leaves you with a feeling of, of disappointment. But – to miss out on going to a World Cup because of a blatantly obvious bad call. Well, I think it leaves you with an empty feeling inside that is hard to, to reconcile. And look, I was I was upset for and don't forget there's a recency bias here as well. 2015 is only oh, I know. five years ago. And um uh you know I guess I got over it um because I watched the game and Ireland played tremendously in Paris, Andrew, but we weren't winning at the point that Henri handled it and centered to Gallas to score. We needed another goal. And Robbie Keane and Kevin Doyle had wasted golden opportunities to put this game with the away goal beyond doubt. And I think maybe, I think Henri's reaction where he sat in the center circle with Richard Dunn and put his arm around Richard Dunn as if to console him, as if he had no part in what had happened. And Richard Dunn didn't know until afterwards exactly what had happened. 
that was the act of a creep. <laughs> and, and that's what annoyed me more than anything about that moment. Uh, that's uh, a great question, though. What's next? Uh, someone asked me, they w- can we find out the reason, uh, uh, Miziel Romero, can we find out the reason none of us know what JJ stands for? I think a lot of listeners do. Um, he's been listening for two years, and I haven't said. Uh, I'm, I'm called, it's JJ, but it's John Joseph, after my grandfather, um, and he was always known as JJ, so that's JJ. Um, and another question about uh, the podcast um erica wants to know as a fellow spurs fan what is the story behind andrew choosing to support spurs i became a fan because of garrett bale so i'm sure he has a better reason than me uh i mean look when you don't have a geographic reason or like a family reason then is any reason good or bad i don't know people might hear what i say and think it's dumb too but i always gravitated towards them because i kind of felt like not to be too dramatic but i kind of felt like almost like the ethos of the club meshed perfectly with the Philadelphia teams that I root for. Like after Lasagna Gate, as traumatic of a moment as it was for Tottenham, I felt like this is such a thing that I feel like I can relate to. Like I just like, so I want, I kind of like enjoyed a club like that with a, with a great history, with an intense rival, uh, which I think is in Arsenal, which is something fun to get behind. And then at the time, uh, it was around probably 2005, I would say, uh, when I started to really like go all in. I just loved the team. Yeah, uh, Ledley King, uh, Aaron Lennon was starting to come up, who was my favorite Tottenham player for a long time, probably until Kane. Um, I just, I just loved the team, and I loved that they were kind of like not one of the big boys at that point. They sort of under Pochettino, they kind of rose to that point, but it was never like people call the Premier League the Big Six now. It wasn't that way. Uh, certainly um at that oh it was they they used to say top four right i mean tottenham were not you know they were kind of in that next tier at that point with like everton tottenham newcastle was probably there then um but you know so they've risen to a different level but yeah at that at that time i just kind of just like i just dug the whole vibe around the club the stadium white hart lane all of it i just uh I don't know. And then I will say that the cherry on top was when I found out that they were like the traditional Jewish supporters club in, in the premier league. And I was like, Oh, well, I'm Jewish. This, this works perfectly. Uh, and so it all just worked on, on every level for me. Uh, Jordan, a Newcastle fan. He asks, I don't know if I'm late to the party, but as a Newcastle fan, do I put any real stock into this takeover. I have a large amount of boy who cried wolf syndrome over here. Thanks for everything. You two are the best. Stay healthy, stay safe. Well, Jordan, it's the same. It's kind of, you say boy who cries wolf, but boy who cries wolf for a year because this is a an ongoing attempt at a takeover. So let's fill people in, Andrew, on the Newcastle potential takeover. Um, I genuinely think this time I would put stock into it. Um. Here is what we know, according to the Athletics Newcastle Correspondence. And this is from today, where they held a question and answer about the takeover. So this is the stage we're at. Essentially, to sum up, it is our understanding that the paperwork is now with the Premier League. After an agreement was reached between the prospective buyers and Mike Ashley last week, and the owners and directors test is now underway. So that seems to be very advanced. Um the Premier League owners and directors test for the owners or the potential new owners of Newcastle United is now underway. And who are these new owners? Mm. I hear you cry. Mm. So 
the um, I guess the the company is called PCP Capital Partners. It's headed by Amanda Staveley. She was involved in the bid to buy Newcastle last year. The Rubin brothers, who are one of Britain's wealthiest families, they have a 10% stake. The rest will be made up by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, which opens the door to more ethical and moral issues. Yeah, I'm very curious how Newcastle fans feel about this because I know how much they despise their current ownership. But there's something about possibly transforming into another Man City, PSG kind of club, which feels very foreign to what Newcastle are. And that was the case for Manchester City, too. Um, I don't know. I just wonder... Does the fan base feel like, oh, my God, we just won the lottery? Or do they feel like this is not what we are? I'm not okay with this. I would say the former rather than the latter. Um, from, what I can, from what I can see online, people are Newcastle fans are absolutely ecstatic about the well, idea of new guess, ownership. It must just speak to how much they hate Mike Ashley. Yeah, but Filippo Clear had an interesting tweet. I'm struggling to. I'm struggling a bit to understand why Newcastle United FC, being owned by the sovereign fund of one of the most brutal regimes on the planet, is somehow better than being owned by Mike Ashley, regardless of what, of what we may think of his ownership and his business practices. Um, that says a lot. It does say a lot, and and uh, you know, there's an argument. Fans compartmentalize things. Fans shouldn't care about this stuff. I disagree. I think fans should care about who are the guardians of their club. And um, Andrew, I think this is a a massive moment for the Premier League. Um, the the owners and directors test is now underway. Uh, I mean, does the owners and directors test, say, for example, the, the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, say n- n- there isn't a member of that that goes on the board. Say it's one of the Rubin brothers and Amanda Staveley. Does that insulate... Um, the Saudis from full investigation. Um, I think no. I, I, I think this I is massive. Say, I would well, say no, well, well, how did the Man City ownership deal go through then? You know? Um, well, they I may th- decide that they're comfortable with it, but I don't think that they will be ignored. I mean, they are the money. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think this is, we're going to hear obviously more about this as, yeah, as, yeah. The, as this develops, but that's where that's the stage it's at right now. And uh, yeah, I think this is a a major moment for the Premier League as we know it um, right now. Uh, Seth the Panda, <laughs> great question. Topical. Whose career would you rather have, Sunis or Pogba? Andrew, even in these strange, uncertain times, Graham Sunis taking shots at Paul Pogba remains a constant, a bulwark against the darkness and a reminder of a simpler, more normal world. So um, just to fill people in, uh, Paul Pogba finally acknowledged Graham Soonest's long-standing criticism slash existence this week on the, <laughs> on the United podcast. Um, these are the quotes from Paul Pogba. I didn't even know who he was, really. I heard he was a great player and stuff like that. I know the face, but not the name. I'm not someone who watches a lot of punditry. I watch a lot of football, but I don't stay after the game to listen to what they say, why they did this or that. I like to focus on football. So that was Pogba with, I think, a quite, considering Sunis's, you know, shots at his 
It was a pretty rational response. Yeah, I thought I thought it was a very calm response. Yeah. Clear, clearly, he has not been paying attention to much of what Sunas has said. Um, and you're going to hate Graham Sunas' response. I just know it because I know how a sports, what kind of sports fan you are. Uh, Sunas responded on Sky Sports with, you know the oldest saying in football comes to mind, put your medals on the table. I've got a big table. JJ, his response is so profoundly stupid to me. Um, and maybe not even in the way that you're thinking I would take it. It's stupid because I almost feel like Graham Sunis doesn't know what Paul Pogba can also throw on the table. Like, is this just an Anglo-centric comment from him where he's just not counting the four Serie A titles that Paul Pogba was a part of with Juventus? He also has a Europa League trophy with Manchester United. And by the way, he won a World Cup. He was one of the best players on a World Cup winning team. So like, okay, mate, I saw Sunis has five domestic titles and three European Cups. That's significant. I'm not taking away what he's done. But like to make that comment, it would have to be that Pogba either hasn't won anything or has like a a league cup and like maybe one title with Juve. Like Paul Pogba is also throwing a lot of pretty prestigious winter medals on the table as well. And Paul Pogba is what, 25 or 26? Uh, yeah, um, and, and like it just in terms of their careers, like Pogba, he's got 52 goals, 48 assists in 201 domestic league starts. Um, Sunas had 56 goals in 358 appearances. Different players, maybe. You know, uh, Sunas was the captain of Liverpool's treble team. So I'm not, I'm not trying to take away his career, um, but to denigrate Pogba's career, you can maybe not like Pogba as a player, but you can't say that he hasn't had a good career. No, and um, I think I think the issue with Sunas, he's 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 kind of got sucked into this rather, as uh, Barney Roney called it, undignified back and forth with. Um, well, it's not a back and forth; it's just a back. He keeps firing shots at at Pogba about you know, kind of character issues. You know, he doesn't take him seriously. He's talked about that maybe he doesn't care enough. He talks about you know kind of personality-based stuff. And honestly, you know, if you're asking me who was a better footballer, I think Graham Sooners was a better footballer, but you can't deny that Pogba is an excellent footballer. And if you want issues about what happened at Man United under Pogba so far, which I think has been disappointing, you know, you can stick to the stick to the football side of things. Um, I also think... There's been great players who haven't won a lot. You know, you've you've said this to me before. You shouldn't, when we, and we were talking about some basketball player, I can't remember who it is, but you shouldn't focus entirely on medals. You know, but there's a lot of players that have ended up with European Cups, Jimmy Traore, David May, who are not good footballers, are not, at least not great footballers. Medals aren't the ultimate arbiter of how skillful or how technically good you are a player, you know? I mean, look at Glenn Hoddle, who you mentioned last, last week. What did Glenn Hoddle win? Oh, we, you, we can run down the list of Tottenham players that don't have medals to their name that are just fine, fine footballers. Yeah, so I, I, I do think that's a dangerous one to go down. Um, but it, it is reassuring that they're still at it, you know? Or rather, Sunis is at it. I have to say, Pogba hasn't said anything about Sunis up until the United podcast this week. Uh, Miles Costello. Um, why did I say Costello? Miles Costello. Say it right, JJ. 
What? Don't, be, don't Americanize yourself. I've been into the Premier League big time for five years and the international game since the O2 World Cup. Since I'm a relatively new fan, I struggle for context for some champions. What's a sports equivalent to Greece winning the 2004 Euros? So this is this is very difficult. Um, there's not real. It, it would be hard to come up with a, a professional sports American equivalent because just like the nature of American sports is that like it's hard to get an underdog to that level to win a competition. So I go to March Madness for stuff like this, and I view Greece as kind of like a mid major. Um, so like. Maybe if Butler had won one of those years where they made the, the the national championship game, but I almost feel like Butler is is like better to college basketball than what Greece is to European soccer. I don't know if that's too harsh. So maybe like maybe the year George Mason made the Final Four. Now they didn't win, but I feel like I, I guess just put put Greece in the realm of what a mid major is to college basketball. Um, I, if a mid major went on and won a national championship. Yeah, I, I I I asked someone what what they thought. Someone said um, NC State in '83, um, who went on that run all the way through with uh, Valvano as coach. And I looked I looked at it. They actually started that year with a bit of optimism. Things fell away for them in the regular season. So I don't think NC State even works. I had to go to golf, Andrew. Oh, okay. Larry Mize, the '87 Masters. Pulled, he pulled off one of the most surprising wins in golf history with arguably the most unlikely shot. Mice took down a pair of legends, Greg Norman and Seve Ballesteros, in a sudden death playoff that ended thanks to him holding a 140-foot chip at the 11th, at the 11th hole for a birdie. Mice didn't win again for six years, just like Greece, and finished his PGA Tour with just four titles. I got that in Golf Digest. So this is a guy out of nowhere taking down the big guns and um, and doing the improbable and then drifting off into the background again. Yeah. Um, Stephen Oviedo, is it wrong to get a Sunderland kit as a Spurs fan just because I love the docu-series? I feel very my American brain with this question. Uh, Great to have my American brain back, so I will do the tease for that. My American brain. Uh, everyone has different philosophies on... Jersey and and general gear purchases uh, from clubs that are not their own. Um, for me personally, I'm not comfortable with it. I would say no, you cannot get a Sunderland kit and be a fan of another club in England. Um, that's just how I feel. I would never do it. Uh, but to each their own. I understand that that is that's just me. Uh, I would feel uncomfortable wearing another team's shirt. Um, Andrew, this quarantine period, lots of people have been posting online their jersey, their soccer jersey collection, and Americans in particular seem to have little trouble accruing jerseys from teams that would rival their own preferred team. So that is a cultural difference. I I actually think with Sunderland being in League One right now, I say go ahead, Stephen, unless you're a Middlesbrough and Newcastle supporter, in which case you may not. Okay? Um, We need to whip through these a bit. By the way, can you please please watch Sunderland Till I Die? Do you... can you do that so we can discuss it? You scolded me the other night. I'll get to it. Please. You don't, I want know, to... you don't know what's going on in this house. All right? All right. Let me let me skip through the next ones. I, I won't allow you to answer some of these. So um, apologies to our Nigerian listener whose name I can't find in the database of names I have for the mailbag. Wow. But he asked us to settle an argument 
as to who was the greatest player to come from that great country. John Obi Mikel, Canu, or JJ Okacha? I'm just going to say this. John Obi Mikel is still playing. He's had a very good resume, but this feels like a case of one of these things is not like the others. John Obi Mikel pales into the background compared to two absolute ballers like Canu and JJ Okacha. I'm going to go with Canu, uh, just marginally over JJ Okacha. But both of them were just such skillful technical players. To even mention um, John Obi Mikel in the same breath. I so mean, son, oh, I can't I'll, do it. I'll say this I just threw into Google uh, greatest Nigerian player of all time just to see what would come up. And so there's a bunch of different random websites. I don't know how reputable any of them are, but random websites that rank like the top 10 Nigerian players of all time, the top 50. And of the six that I uh, that I went to, Kanu was number one in five of them, and Okacha was number one in the other one. So it seems right. like Kanu is more of the consensus choice. I mean, John Obi Mikel is, if you want to narrow it down, if you want to narrow it down to ugly, uh, and I mean ugly in the footballing sense. Oh, I was going to say, he's not a... <laughs> no, he's a good-looking guy. No, I mean... Personal attack. Unfounded, wrong... Ugly, ugly functional central midfielders that Mourinho would love, then he's your winner. Um, okay, uh, I am going to skip that question. I'm going to skip that question. I will get back to you next week. I am going to go to this question for our final question in the mailbag. Uh, this is from Chris Allen. Using only players from the Premier League era... What are your all-time Liverpool and Tottenham lineups? Are you picking them based on their talent at the time they were on the team, not what they did before or after? So those were the rules. I completely misread it. And I read incorrectly that Chris wanted our combined Tottenham and Liverpool teams from the Premier League era. And so I'm sticking with it. This is so hard. Uh, I kind of, I didn't really make an exact team. I sort of broke it down into categories. I have my... These are the players that, to me, have to be on the team. Um, Kane, Modric, and Bale from Spurs. Suarez, Gerrard, Van Dyke from Liverpool. To me, like figure out a way to make it work. But those are the guys that have to be on it. Then my probablys, um, Jamie Carragher. Uh, I did put uh, Ledley King, um, assuming his knee is okay. And uh, JJ... I had a hard time with fullback, so I was like, you know what? I'll put Trent Alexander-Arnold on there as one of my probablys. Uh, and then I have a lot of question mark guys. Um, Robbie Fowler, Klinsman, uh, Kyle Walker, Mo Salah. Um, what do you do in goal? Loris, Friedel, Allison, um, Christian Eriksen. Uh, there's a lot of like good players for both teams that I – that I struggled with. Who are some, I'm curious where you took this. I, I picked a formation. I picked a team. <laughs> I love this team that I've picked. I really uh, do. All right. So in goal, I just went with the European cup winner, Alison Becker, but you're right. I could have gone with, I probably, I probably could have gone with Brad Friedel as well in that, but, but I think Becker, he's better with his feet. So Alison Becker in goal. Laurie's Cur- world cup winning captain. Just going to throw that out there. But that's anyway. that. That's true too. He dropped been one. There, into- been, there, been their keeper for a generation. Yeah. Kicked one into the net in the world cup final as well, but don't worry about that. You play um, many games, you're going to make some mistakes. It's the nature of the sport. <laughs> okay. Um, Alison Becker in goal. I'm playing a four, one, two, three formation. Uh, All right. So, so because I want to give with, to my fullbacks, and you'll see why. I've got Trent Alexander-Arnold at right back. 
Virgil van Dijk and Ledley King in the middle. Okay. Look at us. We're Look at the way they're going to pass out of the back. It's going to be glorious. Um, I'm going to have Gareth Bale as the left as as at left back because he is going to be bombing forward. Now he played that position for like he when he first came to Spurs. That's what he was. That didn't last. Yeah, time. feels like. But it's, no, essentially my midfield is going to be a little bit narrow. Although my attack will be wide. But just bear with me. In the holding central midfield position, I've got Edgar Davids playing there. Um, um, he's got. Yeah, I know he had only one really good season at Spurs, but okay, fine. Um, and then I'm in the two, in behind my three, in the attacking midfield, I'm going to have Steven Gerrard and Teddy Sheringham. Okay. Two players I absolutely love. Gerrard will be an auxiliary kind of forward player arriving late into the box, and I think Sheringham can kind of play as a number 10 creative style. And my front three, on the right-hand side now, my front uh, my Two of these players will swap. One will play central. They'll be able to go wing to wing. Luis Suarez on the right. Dimitar Berbatov in the center. Over Harry Kane? Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. And Mohamed Salah on the left-hand side. Now, the left-hand side of my of my team with Bale showing him Salah is a worry. Uh, Edgar Davids is going to be covering Bale a lot as he goes forward. But that's my team. Wow. Uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. I would. I, I really like that team. Boy, the Berbatov choice is interesting. But uh, but what I a, but what a great player to watch! It's so uh, much fun, Andrew. And if you wanted to go direct to him, you could because he has the skill to control it. He'd release Salah. He'd release Suarez. He'd score goals himself. This would be sexual. <laughs> All right, who's your uh, who manages? Is it is it Klopp? Oh, uh, no, I'm just giving it to Martin Yall so he can mess. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. That that was the mailbag, and I do apologize. We had questions about Garinka. We had questions about um, uh, who else have we? Zach Steffen. We had all those. Those will be in next next week's mailbag. I promise. I'm sorry, but we were going over time there because you know what happens right now, Andrew. Yeah, you have a new segment that you want to debut. Oh no, 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 Andrew! You're so foolish. You really are. Not what to watch for. Yes, it is. Here we go very quickly. Belarusian right. Football League. What do we have? Okay, Belarusian Football League. Um, Bate Barsov hammered Minsk on Sunday. That was the big result from the weekend. The fixtures, I'm going to give you the one. Top of the table, Torpedo. They take on Bate Barsov at 1 o'clock on Saturday. That's your Belarusian Football League, the league that won't quit. <laughs> And now, what is your bad opinion for the week? And now, time for my new segment. It's JJ's Unpopular Opinions. JJ's Unpopular Opinions. Opinions Unpopular Unpopular. Those are ridiculous. Uh, That was the jingle for that. Andrew, my unpopular opinion is the MLS old-style penalty kick was a good idea. You're a fool. The player started 35 yards from goal. They had five seconds to take a shot against the goalkeeper who was free to move up and off his line. In my opinion, it was a good innovation. We're going to put a poll out on Twitter. Listen to the podcast. Vote and give your opinion. It's JJ's unpopular opinions. Opinions, opinions, unpopular. That was really stupid. This is a thing that we kind of briefly had. I had actually made up. I don't have access to it here, but I had made up a drop of... Um, bad opinion alert. Anytime a bad opinion was was coming, I would hit it. It's only happened a couple times. Usually we're, this podcast is littered with fantastic opinions, so we haven't had many chances, but I think I remember using it when I said that uh, Joe Buck should do 
uh, World Cup broadcasting on Fox. Oh, you got crushed. <laughs> One of my worst. Uh, now, I love him, and I'll say that unabashedly. He's a phenomenal announcer, and I think if he put his mind to soccer, I believe that he could do it. And he's been asked. I've heard him, at, uh, because Fox oh. has rights, he's been asked by people, would, is this something you would ever consider? And he has said no. He said he just doesn't know the sport enough, and he would feel wrong doing it. Um, so, but that that is that was probably my all-time bad opinion. Uh, just speaks to how I feel about the man, but I lo- I'm looking forward to more of your bad opinions. We're off to a great start because that, in my eyes, is truly a bad. I, opinion. I don't want your opinion. I want the people's opinion on this bad opinion or this unpopular opinion that I voiced, and I bet no one saw it coming from me—the arch MLS hater that I'm supposed to be. Yeah, you're, you've become very slippery. I thought I had you in a, in a box, but I don't know. Maybe you're a little more dynamic than I give you credit for. Uh, hey, that is our show. Uh, this was fun. I look forward to doing these every single week. Um, before I- before we get out, Andrew, I, I do want to mention um, it's the anniversary, the 31st anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster. And um, I know there's a lot of new listeners and new soccer, um, new soccer content watchers and listeners and people who are just getting into the game. And um, I think – the ESPN 30 for 30 uh, is just, it's harrowing. Maybe this is not a good time to watch it with everything that's going on in the world, but I think it's an important watch and I think people should watch it. And anytime I can mention it, I will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hey man, I enjoyed this. Uh, to you, I say. Check you later, fun boy. A little bit of a delay, but he got it. See ya. Take care, man. Listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast.